Audio conversation with author Sesh Hari, recorded Thursday, September 8th, 2011. Hey, I am super happy to have a, had a chance to talk with uh, Sesh. Uh, that is a pen name. Sesh Hari is a pen name. It, it translates to um, High Scribe in uh, Ancient Egyptian. Uh, and that's the name he's chosen as an author, and he's written um, one book, which is going to be the, the focus of this interview, which is called Handprint of Atlas, and it talks about uh, ley lines and a term he uses, which is topographical emergence. Uh, just talking about the lines that can be followed, uh, whether on a map or whether intuitively or using certain processes to to uh, discover these lines, and it's fascinating, it's just fascinating, along with the um, his theories and conclusions about these lines and about uh, Earth features, um, there's a lot of his own personal journey in there, which makes the book great. Um, I, I just, it really resonated deeply with me. Uh, he also wrote a trilogy of fiction, and uh, there's three books. Uh, one of them is Wonder of the World, the first one. The second one is Metamorphosis, and the third one is The Lost Pleiad. And we talk about those in the in the in this interview. He has also worked with Walter Bosley uh, on two separate books. One of them is the Disneyland book called Latitude Thirty Three: Key to the Kingdom, and another one which is called Empire of the Wheel, which has just been released. All of these books are actually only available on Kindle, which is fascinating. Um, so there's one, two, three, four, five, six books, all only available on Kindle here. Um, and uh, the, I've read a couple of them. They're great. Uh, the Handprint of Atlas is, is I, I recommend it highly. I first heard about Sesh when I heard him on Radio Mysterioso being interviewed by Greg Bishop. Uh, it's excellent. He talks about the, the trilogy of novels on that episode, and it's well worth listening to. It's linked to the show notes. And he also spoke with Don Ecker, and I thought that interview was great also, and, and that'll also be included here. And I, and I encourage you, if you enjoy this one, to listen to both of those. It'll give you a much richer and deeper set of insights into who this guy is. And who this guy is is really freaking... Uh, is really fascinating. He, uh, among other things, has been a Mark Twain impersonator, and he's done that on riverboats, done one-man shows, uh, the Mar like uh, playing the role of Mark Twain. Um, you don't get to hear that often. Uh, he's been a ventriloquist, he's a caricature artist, he's a magician, and he is quite an impressive thinker. I've spoken to him a little bit uh, before doing this interview. We've talked on the phone a couple of times, and um, I'm very impressed with the guy as a as a... I guess just a thoughtful thinker. Uh, one of the things we do talk about on this this uh, podcast here is um, he had his own set of uh, what would be easily construed as UFO abduction events in his youth. Uh, he's very cautious not to call them that in this text, uh, in the text that he wrote, but it, boy, it sure is implied. He's had sightings and as well as seeing um, a small being in his yard. And then I... I also have to say that there's something going on. There's a collision of that phenomena and this this more recent phenomena where he's uh, doing this ongoing research, as well as I think, uh, you know, writing these fiction works, which are which are uh, combining real life fictional events with um, 
what would be uh, you know sort of a fantastic realism, uh, sort of written in the style of uh, adventure novels of um, you know a bygone era. Uh, during the audio interview, we also talk about uh, the events uh, which I share on this blog here uh, that surround my somewhat of odd experience with a line on a map, and I'll have put a link to those. Now, if you get to, if you listen through this, it may be helpful. Uh, this is near the end of the show, and this this show is a little over two hours. So, a little bit uh, two hours from now, um, we'll be talking about those events and the lines on the map, and it may be helpful to uh, to click on some of the visual images, and I'll put a link to those map uh, blog postings on this uh, on the show notes here. And let me add one more thing, which is very unusual for me. I did not edit this at all. I'm just letting it go from beginning to end without editing. Uh, I don't know what happened. For some reason, I did not mumble as much as I usually do. And uh, the content sounds pretty great. If I sound a little bit louder than um, Sesh, I apologize. That's just the way the recording quality came out. Um, and, uh, and I apologize. But it's not too bad. So, um If you've never heard of Sesh Hari, uh, you're in store for something very exciting here. This is this was a wonderful interview, and um, I, I enjoyed it greatly, and I hope you enjoy it too. Hey, I just want to say thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. Oh, absolutely. I'm thrilled to be on your show. Uh, we've had some conversations lately, and they were fascinating, so I expect we'll have a very interesting program. Good, good, and I feel the same way. Um, now, Sesh, you have uh, written a book, and this is the book that's going to be probably the major part of this interview, a book that I just finished called The Handprint of Atlas. And um, uh, it's a big, broad book that encompasses a lot, and, and uh, if if you could just uh, give a, maybe just a summation of it just for the people who are listening. Yes, well, The Handprint of Atlas... I would describe as almost a primer textbook on the subject of ley lines. Um, it's a very complex subject, uh, so many different aspects to it. So I've uh, written with a very broad brush. I've tried to encompass as much as possible. Um, so that's basically what the book is about, but it's also about geophysics because ley lines are related to geophysics. And in the course of me studying this over many, many years, uh, I ended up developing a geophysical theory. So included in that is a rather startling discovery I believe I have made, and uh, hopefully we can discuss that a little today. Uh, and having just finished the book, uh, I would I would add I would say there's a bunch of startling discoveries that you, that you may may have made, and I'll also add that that reading the book the book uh, follows the path of a personal journey. Also, there's a lot yes. of information about yourself in there, and and I found that almost as interesting, if not more interesting, than the than the geophysical stuff. Right, and ironically, I've had several people say, if you want this material to be taken seriously by the scientific community you have to leave out the personal stuff. Unfortunately, when you're dealing with lays, you're dealing with a phenomenon that is personal. It is intrinsically involved with consciousness. And I think it's 
crucial in this book that I describe how I got involved in my awareness of lays and began studying them because I cannot separate my personal experiences from the nature of the phenomenon I'm trying to explain. It's, it involves synchronicity. It involves psychic phenomena. So there's no way I could possibly have explained my theory. And I think having read the book, you, you probably can see that. I think anybody reading the book should get that. And, but those who are concerned about relating to mainstream science, which is completely materialistic, of course, you know, they're going to have problems with some of the material in the book. But my approach is scientific. And I'm, I've tried to set forth a theory that can be tested scientifically. And I think that's one of the main differences between my book uh, and other books on lays, that uh, these other approaches to the studying of, of the lays is it's not scientifically rigorous. And I've tried to do that. Now, um... Some of your detective work in this book seems to uh, – it doesn't quite seem to follow your intellect or logic in a way, but um, I get the sense that there, it's – you're following your intuition in a much in a much stronger sense. Yes. And, and how do you yeah. make the distinction between the two? I don't because uh, in my philosophical view of reality, it's a continuum. And uh, I give you an example of the idiot savant – who is able to tell you what any prime number is up to huge astronomical figures, they can do that in an instant. Psychologists have never been able to explain how they're able to do this. Uh, it's a psychic phenomenon, what's going on there. But even our ordinary reasoning is colored and um, conditioned by the psychic awareness, the way we think, the way we understand things, constantly the psychic is impinging upon that and informing that, helping us to understand. Um, think about children who are able to learn language so quickly. There's a lot of things going on psychologically in the process of learning and discovery that's not simple linear logic. The linear logic is very important, especially uh, in the, the aftermath of experience, to try to put that into a framework that's understandable in an abstract way. It's very important. I'm not one of the New Age people who's completely off the beam and they're not interested in logic, scientific evidence. I think that's very important. Uh, but I also think it's important to recognize that legitimate data points are also psychic experiences. So um, I don't see any distinction there. And, and, and that when I read the book, I, I sensed that in the book, and, and it, it rang very true for me in a way, um, just from some of my own experiences. So, so, I, so I, just, I definitely tapped into that very, very closely. So you use the term ley lines, and, and when I think of a ley line, uh, actually it's a little bit different now that I've read the book, but when I uh, you know, thought of ley lines before reading the book, you know, I pictured some gentleman in a nice tweed jacket with maybe a compass and a, and a, uh, a hickory stick uh, walking around uh, you know, Britain going from ancient site to ancient site, you know, following what may have been uh, uh, something that he could perceive using a, a dowsing wand or maybe even a compass. Right, right. 
yeah, that, and that's the picture of Alfred Watkins in the 1920s who popularized the whole thing. In fact, he's the one who coined the term lay. Uh, but um, there's quite a bit more to it than that. Uh, the term lay is a very ancient term. Uh, it actually goes back to ancient Egyptian. Few people have, well, I think I've, I'm the one who discovered that. Or at least that's my theory. Uh, the word in ancient Egyptian for storehouse was actually lay. Uh, what they meant by storehouse is very rich, but it relates to all of these ideas about places being centers of vital energy, vitality, uh, uh, and so that's the beginning point. Watkins did a lot of interesting research, but he had a lot of criticism because the mainstream scientists were saying these alignments are just in his imagination. Uh, they're just, it's just a coincidence. You get two or three points in a map that line up. It means absolutely nothing. So he was open to that argument. Now, over the years, other people have done a lot more research that tends to argue anecdotally that there are these real alignments, but it's still very much open to criticism that, well, this is still just coincidental. You know, where's the real rigorous science? Uh, so that's what I got into later after I had some incredible experiences that I wasn't even thinking about lays at the time. But uh, these things led me on to start looking at certain spot, uh, spots in the earth, and I realized these were lays, and I began, you know, the in-depth study of it. And and when you say um, some of these experiences were, you know, you're hinting that they were pivotal to you in your life, yeah. I'm, I'm assuming one of those would be the Line of Dundee? The Line of Dundee, yeah. I tell about that in the handprint of Atlas. It was an experience that occurred to me in 1985, in Florida. I was on a trip to Florida. Uh, I ha had had a precognitive dream, or I had had a dream that turned out to be substantively precognitive, involving the Challenger disaster. Uh, and in the course of my trip to Florida, I experienced a string of synchronicities. This was uh, a period of about a week or eight days. I was back there and at the conclusion of the trip, uh, there was a particular incident that occurred that uh, made it, it awakened me to this whole situation I was in with all these synchronicities. And I started looking at the map of Florida, and I began noticing these alignments. One of the, the alignments uh, involved Coral Castle, which I write about extensively in the handprint of Atlas. Uh, but the particular incident that occurred to me uh, happened on December 23rd of 1985, uh, and it involved an automobile accident that I was almost involved in, and narrowly escaped. Uh, a big rig almost hit us, went off the road, it hit a light pole, it spun around in a circle. Uh, my brother was with me at the time. We got out, and uh, the people got out of the cab, and they were all right, but uh, we were in kind of a state of shock because we almost got hit. These people could have been seriously injured. They weren't. They broke a power line that was on the ground. Well, after this event, um, 
my brother noted the name of the town, Dundee, and I had been noticing all these synchronicities. So I started looking into the etymology of Dundee. I got out a map of Florida. I looked at it, and I noticed that Dun- there was a line between Dundee and Coral Castle, that if I drew a line between those two points and extended it on up into the United States and Canada, there were a number of very interesting places that line crossed or came very near to, including my grandfather's place of birth. And then I noticed in Kentucky uh, a whole bunch of little towns with interesting place names that related to places where I was born, my brothers were born, my grandfather was born, and also along this line repeated in several places was the place named Dundee. So therefore, I began calling this the line of Dundee. And that began my my study of the ley lines. Uh, uh, so, um, you know, I, I think that's about as clearly as I can explain it right now to you, but I, I would encourage the readers of the book uh, to, to look into that, and they could see how rich this experience was for me and why it inspired me to dig into this deeper, this whole subject. Now, yeah, this is actually, here's something I have written in my notes here, and I copied this right out of your book. Um, at the end of the chapter, where you feature the line of Dundee and your experiences, you write, what I was doing was about to send me on a fantastic quest, a quest that continues to this day. The line I was studying was a path, and it was meant for me alone. Um, That statement resonated so deeply with me, um, just given a set of my own personal experiences. And uh, it also, um, I'll read another little quote here in a little bit uh, that that resonates also very deeply with me, that that almost matches that. And it's a very mystical quote from from, uh, Carlos Castaneda. Yes, yes. Um, And... And the the whole point of this is that these were obviously synchronicities. And keep in mind that these synchronicities had been occurring to me in Florida and involved this dream in which I uh, saw a a rocket ship very much like the space shuttle crash at night. And it turns out that um, shortly after that, the Challenger disaster happened. Uh, So right off the bat... This is about psychic phenomena. It's about synchronicity. Uh, yet, what I noticed with this line of Dundee, it was also about physical reality. Because that line, I noticed, formed the long axis of the Florida Peninsula. Uh, and you might, someone might ask, well, how do you know that was the long axis? Well, uh, I'm an artist, as you are, Mike. And uh, I've studied art for many years, and I have a, a, a developed aesthetic perception. I can see the average line in undulating forms. Uh, you know, Renaissance artists use this throughout their paintings and even in sculptures, you know, where they would take something like a pentagram or a golden rectangle, and they would use that as a basis or a template in order to organize the various visual elements in the painting so that your eye would follow all of these, these uh, single objects into an integrated picture. It would be a pleasurable experience. And, and the viewer wouldn't necessarily be aware of the underlying geometry. In fact, they were probably not supposed to be aware of that. 
but nevertheless, it was there and working at a certain level subliminally. So I had this intuitive awareness of this, and I could see that that was the long axis of the Florida Peninsula, or very approximately to it. And I was wondering, what's going on here? Um, is this some kind of geological phenomenon? So that took me into California, and I live here in California, um, and I started looking at places around here, land masses around here, and studying interesting spots in the landscape and noticing how they were lining up. And I began to form this theory that actually the, the lays are geologically based. So I, I began taking it from there. Yeah, this is this is fascinating. Hey, I just found that quote that I was that from Carlos Castaneda, and I'm going to read yeah. it here. And then it just this is a quote that um, for me personally had a had a big influence on my life. I went through sort of a hard time, and I had to sort of reassess my life. And and then and then this quote came along. It's very short and very simple, and it and it um, had a you know you know had a strong impact on my life. Here yeah. it goes. Any path is only a path, and there is no affront to oneself or to others, in dropping it if that's what your heart tells you. Look at every path closely and deliberately. Try it as many times as you think necessary. Then ask yourself, and yourself alone, one question. Does this path have a heart? If it does, the path is good. If it doesn't, it is of no use. Yes, I am familiar with that. It's a very famous quote, and very true. Very yeah. true. Yeah. And you know, interesting thing about Castaneda, uh, years ago, I really thought there was a lot of bunk there um, back, this would probably be the 70s. When did he, when did he come out with his books? Uh, the, they, mostly in the 60s, as I recall. I think they sort of, 60s, yeah, yeah. The, kind of that late hippie era that kind of... Right, And um, but, but I was very much kind of into a more linear scientific materialism mode of thinking. I was never a materialist per se, but uh, much more along those lines, and I, I was at least skeptical of Castaneda, but um, since then, many decades later, you know, um, it, there's a lot of interesting things in his writings there. Uh, Reality is not the way they teach us in school. It's not scientific materialism. This is one of the things I began actually realizing uh, back in 85 when I had this experience. I realized it was synchronicity, but what does that mean? Carl Jung coined that term, synchronicity, and he defined it as an a-causal coincidence, an a, a meaningful coincidence, but a-causal. Well, what, that's meaningless, really, a-causal. Um, a better definition of synchronicity is that it's a meaningful coincidence uh, whose cause is mysterious. We don't understand the causation. That doesn't mean it doesn't have a cause. Uh, so... Um, um, I, over a long period of time, I developed my own theory about synchronicity and how it's related to topology, and I, I have the term uh, topological emergence, which is what I think really synchronicity is. You can think of it like a flower blooming, you know, that um, there is a visible manifestation of a lot of forces that come together to make something where you can see it visible, tangible, obvious, but that thing that is manifested has all sorts of causations that are invisible, unknown, but you can kind of get a grasp on all of those causations through per 
receiving that object or that event. And that's what synchronicity is. It's, it's two events coming together that coincide in some way and are personally meaningful for you. Uh, and it's a topology of karmic causation going on at a very deep level. This is what was happening to me with the line of Dundee. I, I didn't understand that at that time that well, but I did know something very significant was happening. I came back, I studied these things, and uh, uh, I did find a, a significant path, a path with heart. And I, I started following it, studying it more, and, and I began discovering some really strange things about California history, for example. Yeah, this is interesting, and, and, and on the, as far as the synchronicity is something I'm, I'm totally fascinated by, and I feel like, uh, you know, how to say it, like that synchronicity is kind of intertwined with my mission statement of life in a way where I, I just feel like the, uh, uh, on, on a very simple level, um, you know, the best advice I have for anyone who experiences a synchronicity is simply to pay attention. Uh, and then the, the, the one of the things that's challenging and complicated for me with synchronicities is that they are often so deeply personalized. I mean, it feels like there's some hidden architect just out of my view that's influencing a, a series of things in my life in a way that would create these things. And um, and oftentimes the synchronicity is so... would appear um, almost meaningless from the outside, but to me and me alone, it has it has a very profound meaning. And oftentimes right. even even translating that you know, like to trying to share it with a friend, you know, I could tell the synchronicity in, in one minute, but to 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 better understand the impact, it might take a half hour of me telling, you know, right. what was leading up to that. Right. That's actually one of the characteristics of a real synchronicity is that it, it's always personal. It's always directed at a recipient. And... Um, it's always very difficult to communicate its significance to another person. And it, and it has to do with this very thing I'm talking about where you have deep causation. Uh, it's deep karmic causation. And you know yourself better than anybody else. And so when a real synchronicity occurs to you, it's speaking to you from that deep level of all these various kinds of purposes that are out there in the universe coalescing and they and it comes up to you it's talking to you directly um so when you try to explain this to another person you're just telling them the tip of the iceberg you're giving them the the most obvious abstracted bit of information about that synchronicity and it's not very impressive the person kind of does a whole ho-hum on you and it could be somebody you know very well I, and I'm speaking from experience here, that your own synchronicity is never as impressive to another person as it is to you, and it's meant to be that way. Once you learn about synchronicity, you, you also learn that, first of all, you don't need the other person to really embrace it the way you do. Uh, don't expect them to understand it, because it was meant for you, uh, but it doesn't mean it's not real, and... You, you would not be too impressed with their synchronicity either because you wouldn't understand it fully. So that's the nature of the whole thing. Uh, but the universe is, in a way, it's very, very complex, but it's also very information-rich, and it's very vital, and it's very comprehensible, 
strangely enough. That complexity gets boiled down to events that we can understand. That's, the, that's what it means to be human. And, you know, even, uh, for example, like the ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics were designed with that in mind. They take very simple emblems and pictograms, and they're just absolutely loaded with information. And the people who really knew how to read those, they read those in a very sophisticated way, just the way you and I experienced synchronicities. When they saw a pictogram, it would really hit them emotionally, intellectually. It would just be full of information. And, you know, that's one of the problems with the Egyptologists. They, they're reading those pictograms like they're letters in an alphabet, and that's just not what that was all about. It was a different kind of communication. Uh, I got into that a little bit, too, because in the course of um, trying to understand the lays, I went back through history and found that ancient Egypt was very important in trying to understand what lays are, and because that knowledge went back there to the, the house of life among the, the chief scribes of that era, and, and, and it's really an Atlantean knowledge, so and, and that came through the ancient Egyptians. So that term lay, uh, storehouse, it's just uh, so rich in meaning because it means storehouse of vital energy, storehouse of information. Uh, lays are storehouses of psychic information. You can tap into them, and it, they're incredible. Um, and they could be very dangerous, too. Uh, I, when I'm talking to people about researching lays, I say, you know, it's not a game. It's a very serious thing. You have to approach the whole thing with respect because there's tremendous power in the lays. You can literally just do about anything through these lays. Uh, and certain esoteric people and groups, they, they do understand this. And, and these lays have been used in various esoteric ways throughout history. So um, I, I gradually began to understand this and even have some you know, experiences along those lines. Now, now these clues and these synchronicities, um, would you see this, you know, you, you talk about your life's journey and how you were, were a, you know, rational materialist at one point, and, and then uh, are these clues and synchronicities along the way and these uh, profound events, would you consider that almost an indoctrination? Well, not an indoctrination, because the very word doctrine is uh, absolutely the opposite of what I experienced. Doctrine implies an arbitrary kind of mindset, of, you know, an arbitrary set of rules or dogma. Um, what I experienced was more like an initiation into an, a high, another level of awareness. Uh, and in that sense, yes, it was an initiation. The, uh, you know, the Dundee experience was very much like the, um, the ancient Greeks when uh, they, they dealt with the memory theater. And the, I, I actually discussed this in the handprint of Atlas, uh, where the uh, the poet Simonides, Simonides um, has this experience with a banquet hall. A lot of people who know Greek myth would be aware of that, where he, the the banquet hall was full of people. Simonides went in to he was the poet. He went in to to give his poem, uh, and he dedicated uh, half of the poem to Castor and Pollux, but the the host wouldn't pay for the full poem. He would only pay half since 
half of it was dedicated to these two gods. Um, in the midst of this, uh, Simonides is called out of the banquet hall. There's two gentlemen out there. They turn out to be Castor and Pollux. Meantime, the banquet hall collapses, kills everybody inside. The shock of this uh, has an effect on Simonides' awareness. He goes in, and because of the shock, he's able to tell the identity of everybody in the hall, even though they've been mutilated beyond recognition, simply by their position in the hall. And from this, he supposedly discovered the art of memory, which was a way of memorizing things and uh, giving speeches by memory. And all of these techniques have come down to us today. Orators, actors use some form of this. You, you know, you've probably seen stage acts where mentalists can remember everybody's name in a room. They, they just call it out once, and then they go back and tell everybody's name. There's, there's ways of doing that through association. It's basically what Simonides was doing. Uh, so, but it was because of this shock that hit him that he was able to do this. This very similar thing happened to me with the, the Dundee incident. It was a kind of initiation into the lays, it, full of synchronicity, but a, but a shocking experience that caused me to kind of become more alert, to look at things in a different way. So it was an initiation, and it continued. And I have to add that it continues to this day. I continue to have unusual experiences that broaden my awareness of things, heighten my awareness uh, where I can understand things a bit better, and you know it's growing all along. And I've I've gone far beyond the hand, the information in the handprint of Atlas. You know, but this was uh, the the original book came out in 2006. I did an update for 2010 with a little bit more information. Um, but this kind of represents all of my experiences up to about 10 years ago. And since then, all kinds of things have happened to me. And uh, you know, so uh, th this is just the beginning point, but it's something people who are not familiar with lays, they need to read this first, and, th and they probably would have their own experiences. Um, you know, you choose the, the, I, it's, I agree that initiation is a much better word than indoctrination. Now, <clears throat> how would you define the role of a shaman in today's society? I mean, I have a, I have a visual image of a shaman in a primitive village and the role they might no. play, but we no longer collectively live in a primitive village, and, and I'm just well, curious how you see that. We, we don't have shamans in our culture, uh, in our modern Western culture, because it is materialistic. Uh, we do have sort of a category of that, which are the political pundits, the scientists. The, it's a different kind of model. Uh, but that model, it, it, it disenchants the individual. It says the individual is cut off from the universe. The, it, it, the universe is dead matter. There's no consciousness out there except for a few little sparks here and there. You know, there's humans on this planet. Maybe there's other beings and other planets and other solar systems, whatever. Uh, but it largely says the universe is dead, very straightforward uh, materialism. And so you have to kind of look to experts, experts, whether religious experts or scientific experts, 
to set your fundamental goals and even to tell you how to live your life and, and your own personal goals. You're looking, most people today, they're looking for somebody to tell them what to do. Um, the shaman, as I understand it, was a, an individual who was tapped into this deep synchronicity I've been talking about. And their function was to open the psychic centers of the community so that the individual could have his own psychic experiences, uh, so the individual could heal himself. It was sort of, it was an alchemical process where the shaman would act as the seed of the community. That was his function. And this really goes back even further because in my view of history, uh, I'm one of those who, I'm a proponent of the Atlantean theory, you know, that there was uh, an advanced civilization on Earth uh, before historical times. And in, in, in Atlantis, as I understand it, they had a, a, a kings at that time. And the, the king in Atlantis was quite different from the way we understand kingship today. Uh, he was an alchemical seed for the people. He was... Uh, he was like an archetype. You could imagine someone who, you could say, the ideal human being. Uh, this would be someone who would be in perfect physical health, perfect psychological health. Uh, their, their purpose is to be an example to everybody else, something to aim for as an individual. But it wasn't in the sense of, I'm going to tell you what to do today and tomorrow and what to wear and what to eat. It was more by setting an example. And but it went even beyond that to um, some very interesting things I talk about in the handprint of Atlas toward the end with the Great Pyramid that it was an actual physical, archemical process going on where the king was physically vitalizing humanity through his activity with the Great Pyramid, but it was a very complex but integrated process going on. And, and parts of this process continued after the collapse of Atlantis, and it took this form I'm talking about where you'd have the chief, you'd have the shaman, and they continued to act in this alchemical manner with the community. So what we have today is a very disconnected, uh, spiritually bereft situation where we do have our political pundits, we do have our political leaders, but it but there's no stimulation toward the individual. There's no vitality being sent forth for the individual to bloom and flourish. Uh, so so I, I think that's the best I can explain it from my view of what the whole thing was about. Good. And, and, and I was, you know, I had a reason for asking that question. And, yeah. uh, and, and the reason was, in a way, um, I don't know how to say this, like looking into these esoteric th- uh, things that, that I'm exploring in this blog and through these through these audio interviews, I get the sense that um, there are people out there providing the role of shaman, um, and these people, you know, aren't necessarily the center of the community. They are very much on the periphery, but they're 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 here, and somehow they've right. gone through an initiation process. And and I would I would say very much the having read the handprint of Atlas, uh, that would be in a way the role your the role you're playing right now in in our well, society it might be it might be a tiny pebble in a great big pond but uh right. but i but i sense that that you know everything you said it was very interesting as you spoke about the role of the shaman you know and i reflected on on the content of the book uh, you know they they married quite tidy 
Yeah, well, uh, I would say if I, if I am uh, in that role, it's in a very implicit way. Uh, I would say that definitely I am naturally a shaman by both physical, biological lineage. I am a shaman. Um, you know, I, the, the whole, my, my pen name, Seshari, you know, is, uh, means uh, high scribe and, uh, from the ancient Egyptian language. Uh, so uh, I, I do have that role implicitly in me. I'm not pursuing that consciously. Uh, I certainly don't see myself as a guru, someone. Uh, I, the last thing I'd want to do is be a guru of a cult, and I think that can be very destructive. But I, what I, would, I, I am trying to do is just do positive things in my life, and I am trying to share this information with people. So in that sense, yes, uh, I, that is a shaman's role. Um, and also, I do have this kind of odd vital energy. I don't really write about it in the handprint of Atlas all that much. I do write about my contact with the non-humans in my childhood. Uh, and I have a picture of one of them in the book. Um, and I, I do think that the reason I was contacted by those beings was that uh, they were very much interested in my vital energy, the, the natural uh, uh, etheric vital energy that people like me have, uh, an over, overabundance of it. And I can detect it in my mundane life, how people react to me. And, uh, you know, if you have a lot of vital energy, you get a characteristic response from people and things happen to you in a certain way where you can tell people are actually tapping into your energy. Uh, so in that sense, yeah, uh, I'm a shaman by nature, but I've, I think what I've actually done is I've consciously avoided that role. Um, I've actually saw that, yes, uh, I, I have that in me, but maybe I, I feel I'm not spiritually developed in this lifetime enough to take on that role, you know, so um, uh, I... You know, I, I, I would look to some other people, you know, to, to be an active shaman, but I think we all can be that role in life. We all have this vital energy. Uh, so, you know, we can all have a positive impact on people around us, you know, and, uh, and that's what it's all about with the shaman. He's trying to stimulate the community so that they have their vital energy and they do their own thing. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a, a proponent of individualism and freedom of the individual. And so, you know, it would be the exact opposite of someone trying to start a cult and then dictate to, the, to these people, you should do this, that, and the next thing. That's completely against everything I believe in. Yeah, and, I, and I've, there's, to me, that a cult leader and a shaman are, you know, diametrically opposite. In, in right. Their, yeah. um, hey, you just mentioned that you had, and you talk about it in the book, and I thought it was fascinating, uh, the interactions in your youth with what you called non-human entities. And yeah. uh, my, uh, from partially from personal experience and partially from uh, the research that I've been doing, and, and partially... I mean, that's been the major focus of the blog is what would be the UFO contact experience or the UFO abduction experience. And, and uh, right. you avoided the term UFO, which I understand. Um, but um, these events happened in your youth, which I find very interesting, especially after reading your book. 
um, because of the line of inquiry you've made in your life and then the conclusions you're making are so profoundly bold that I'm left to conclude that, that those events in your youth and, and what you're pursuing now are somehow intertwined. Well, I've, I avoided in the book making a statement like that. I left it to the reader to draw his own conclusions because there's no hard and fast evidence there's a connection between the two. But I myself have looked at the whole thing, and this is the reason I put it at the beginning of the book about the non-humans. I felt that, to be honest about this whole thing and the synchronistic aspects of it and everything, to give a full picture to the reader, I needed to put that in the book. I, I, I actually debated putting it in the book because, of course, there are people who are still very skeptical about the whole abduction phenomenon uh, and... Uh, you know, it, it, it's just another obstacle in getting people to listen to you if you put this in. And there's so many people who have claimed to be abducted, and some of them are very famous, like Whitley Strieber, uh, other people just uh, from unknown individuals, whatever. It's been a huge subject, and I'm sure a lot of people, even the paranormal community, are probably a little bored with it. And it wasn't my main thesis in my book, but I still felt it needed to be in there. Did any of this information come to me as a result of my interaction with these beings? I've had very people, people very close to me ask that question. And my thought is, I believe it's connected, but I don't know how closely. I think it is something like this, that the same reason I'm having these experiences, understanding the ley line, is basically the same reason these beings were interested in me. It, it flows from the same... Uh, cause, which is my unique nature in the sense that I'm of a certain lineage. I believe I'm of a lineage of ancient scribes uh, that go all the way back to Atlantis. I, you know, I've done personal research and genealogical research, and, and um, I believe that I'm of this lineage, as many people are, uh, and they don't know it in some cases. Uh, but uh, I have a very interesting genealogy and, and personal family history that points to that and that it was a continuing thing going on for generations. And notice that the abduction phenomenon involves people being uh, abducted in, in generations. You know, the grandparents and the parents and the children are all abducted when they look back over a century or so. Well, things like that have happened in, with me. Um, so um, I felt that was important to talk about that. What these beings are, I don't know. Um, I'm not going to. At one point early on, when I really got to thinking about this, and I've been interested in the subject, of course, all my life, being a child, having these experiences, but I shut them out at that time. I didn't want to deal with them as realities. But I, as I got older, I read UFO books and all that, and uh, uh, my thought was, well, this must must have been spacemen from you know, another star system or, you know, from another galaxy or something. Well, I don't discount that possibility that that kind of thing is going on, um, but I think the subject is much more complicated, and uh, the, the things I've studied over the decades, and even with my own personal experiences, lead me to think that this is a phenomenon that involves things like interdimensional realities and time travel. So um, it's very complex, but I think that maybe 
some of this information I have in the handprint of Atlas, it's possible it might have been imparted to me through my contact with non-human beings. I just don't know. I'm not claiming that, but I, I could leave that open as a possibility. Um, this, here's a, this is. Uh, do you ever feel compelled or impelled to to do the research you're doing? No, actually not. Uh, what I felt, well, I, and I'll tell you, I've always been a little leery of obsessiveness in all forms. Um, there, are, there's been a number of people in, in the UFO field over the years that have had, come to bad ends, and they they get obsessed. Uh, you know, I think the archetype of that whole milieu was captured in the film Close Encounters of the Third Kind, when the main character, played by Richard Dreyfus, becomes obsessed, you know, with the whole UFO experience. And and he was supposed to represent the typical UFO abductee. They basically go nuts, you know, and they just become completely obsessed, and there's it, that's all there is in their life. Well, I, I've always uh, resisted that strongly. So, first of all, no, I, I don't feel that. I, I've always curious about it. I've also recognized that the whole UFO field is very important to understanding reality in general, philosophically, and anyone, uh, let's say a professional philosopher, any professional philosopher who's going to ignore the not just UFOs, but the whole paranormal, um, they are not being honest. They are they're limiting their data tremendously, mountains of data about reality. They're just completely missing it. So, you know, when I read a, some books by, uh, let's say, an analytic uh, philosopher, uh, I, I'm not impressed with their ideas because they have such a limited uh, database they're working from. Uh, their conclusions are irrelevant. I, I'm much more impressed with someone like Dean Radin, who who has done scientific parapsychological research, uh, and and my approach. I I'm not a scientist. I don't claim to be one. I just claim to be a reasonable human being, and I am trying to approach all this in a rational manner. There is no such thing as the scientific method. That itself is a myth. But there is reason, logic, uh, rationality. There is uh, modes of testing things rationally, which scientists use, you know, blind tests and uh, statistics. All these things are valid. And I've tried to uh, do those kind of things in a way with what I'm doing. You know, I'm, uh, you know the, the study of lays requires a statistical analysis. Well, we might get into that a little bit. I don't want to get too technical for your readers, uh, for your listeners, but um, uh, a rational approach is needed, but not a materialistic dogma approach, you see. So, um, so you know, that's my uh, attempt at the whole thing, uh, but I don't want to get obsessed with it, and I'm not obsessed. I have I have all sorts of interest that range far beyond this. So I come back to it at intervals. I find it like a faint voice calling me at intervals, and some little thing will happen or some big thing, and I plunge back into it and I learn more, and then I leave it aside for a while. And I think that's important. You need that period to let it uh, incubate in your mind and your emotions, and then 
you come back to it naturally. That's the way to pursue this kind of thing. Oh, that's good advice. That's excellent advice. Um, I'm going to, uh, there's a, uh, an author and, and a researcher and <clears throat> presenter named William Henry. Are you yeah. familiar with him at all? Uh, yeah, actually, he and I were at uh, Kempton, Illinois, uh, a few years back for a, a conference, and uh, he was speaking there, and I, w- I didn't really have an opportunity to talk to him much, but I am aware of his work, and uh, uh, I've, he has some interesting ideas there um, that, in fact, uh, connect to some of the most advanced uh, uh, work I've been doing with these ley lines in you know the last couple of years. Uh, so I, I don't agree with everything he says in his books. Uh, I think he's mistaken about some of his ideas on uh, symbology and mythology. But still, he's a very interesting writer, and I think he's got some interesting ideas in his books. Yeah, and I, I agree too. And it's hard to—I mean, it's hard to agree with everyone. And I think you would yep. be foolish to, to agree with everyone. And and mm-hmm. I suspect that you know people could respect your work greatly and, and and not agree with every single point, and that's fine. Right. But the thing that 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 uh, William Henry is a good example for me is uh, I, I've sat through some of his presentations and I've listened uh-huh. to his listened to him talk. I have a couple of his books here on my shelf. And he has a way of just, in a PowerPoint presentation, just showing image after image after image, and one image will be of uh, hieroglyphs from ancient Egypt, and the next image will be the CERN super collider, and the next image will be, um, you know, like a painting of Jesus from the Renaissance era. And I find that at a certain point, um, like I can't, you know, like, like there's no way, all I can do is just, you know, hop on for the ride because I right. can't logically say like, oh, wait a minute, let's study that, 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 uh, that image that you just showed. And I want to, you know, think about it and ask some questions, but that doesn't happen. It just is one image after another. And, yeah. uh, in a funny way, there, there comes a point when you almost have to, is like me, the person listening to William Henry, I just have to, uh, just you know, abandon that, that neediness where I want to like butt in and say like, well, wait a minute, I have to ask about this image and I just have to sort of go along for the ride. And what happens is, uh, I end up, it ends up freeing me. I feel less stuck and the information that he's imparting. And I fully expect that if he showed me a hundred slides, a certain percentage of them would be, uh, you know, like, you know, if you actually did deep research on them, would have some other meaning. Uh, but uh, I feel like the meat of his presentation, I it just it just washes over me, and I absorb it in a way that that uh, that I almost want to say it's like absorbing mythology. Uh, yes. You know, where where in mythology, often in you know often the 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 essence is somewhat hard to grasp it's a little bit mystical and i find that i had the very same experience reading your book um you listed a lot of things um i'm obviously not going to go to the you know the you know geology department of some you know major institution and go to the basement and and dig through old uh data but what i can do is just um as best i can absorb everything you wrote and i found that instead of uh Oh, your your goal may have been to convince me of of a new form of of uh, interpreting, you know, uh, topographical emergence. Um, but what instead happened is I felt like I was immersed in a form of mythology, where where almost mystical truths were imparted. Well, 
definitely, no question about that. That's an aspect of what I'm writing about. There's no question about it. Um, and it's like I was talking about the ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics, uh, that um, there are, see, the human mind cannot grasp archetype directly. Um, a lot of people don't even know what an archetype is, and it's very hard to get at it because to give a definition itself to the term is elusive. It's difficult. You, what you have to do is you give examples, and eventually, this is part. This is kind of an initiation in and of itself. Eventually, if you see enough examples, it's like learning the meaning of a word through context. You eventually get it. But an archetype is an embodiment of an of a abstract essence that cannot be understood directly by the human mind. And a perfect example of it is something like the whole number series, one, two, three, four, five, etc., into infinity. Um, those numbers actually are not just designating quantities that you can make physical through making three apples or three oranges, there's the number three itself that is not a quantity, it is a quality. Three is a quality, and, and, and as a quality, it is archetype. And you cannot understand three as an archetype directly. So what you do is you see three apples, three oranges, three birds, and eventually if you can raise your consciousness enough, you begin to kind of get what three means as an archetype, and you can find it in the Trinity. That's an archetype of three. Um, but there are all kinds of archetypes, and, and they were expressed in the hieroglyphics of uh, ancient Egypt, uh, but they're also expressed in other forms of symbology and art, whatever. And so what you're talking about with my book is Definitely, I am trying to convey an archetype there, several archetypes, implicitly in what I'm writing, and it's, it's a very important part of the whole thing. Um, I am uh, setting forth a very linear uh, geophysical theory, okay, and uh, I think that's very simple to understand, and in, in that case, I'm either right or wrong, but... Um, the, the thing you're talking about is much more subtler, and it's really what the heart of the whole thing is. So, um, yeah, I'd agree with you. But I don't. And another thing I would say is, there's absolutely nothing wrong for an, a reasonable, rational person to sit and absorb a collection of images and not try to analyze it logically as you're having that experience, because that's part of the epistemological process. You're taking in information, and eventually that will be processed, and you'll be able to think about that in a linear way to a certain extent and incorporate it, that into your body of knowledge. Um, so it's all very important. Uh, intuition is very important uh, to the scientific process itself. It's scientists use intuition to discover things. They don't really write about it that much, but if you look at uh, all the uh, the physicists of the 20th century and how they made their discoveries, you're finding people are having dreams and they're, they're imagining things and doing thought experiments. And, you know. So 
or taking uh, LSD if you, you know. Yes, yes, yes. Hallucinogenics can do that, uh, particularly if it's done in a controlled way and uh, the people know what they're doing, then, then it's a useful tool. It can also be just a disaster if it's not in the, done in the right way in the right hands, you know. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Hey, um, so when you talked about you, so in the book you talk about a series of lines and and the convergence of these lines and things that show up along these lines. And in a way, sometimes you were implying that there was secret knowledge, maybe esoteric knowledge that's passed down through uh, you know uh, nefarious societies. Um, and well, whether nefarious or not, um, you know that it's secret knowledge that is part of our civilization per se, you know. Yeah, maybe nefarious. I just, I have this sort of image of, of like the secret uh society being up to, you know, no good, but, um, uh, right. That's the cliche. And, and I'm not saying that that's not true uh, to, to some significant extent, but, um, it's hard to say. Uh, I'm not a member of any secret society, so I'm just an individual looking at it from the outside in and, and seeing the effects of various things and trying to piece it together. But, um, you know, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that because there is secret knowledge that um, it's automatically of evil intent. Good, good. Um, you know, but uh, because there's there's many good reasons for knowledge being secret. Um, uh, you know, there's, there's very valid reasons that our government uh, keeps their secrets about their weapons and that kind of thing. We don't want power to fall into the wrong hands and be used against us in a bad way, you know. So there's valid reasons for secrecy, and you know the, the ancient alchemists were 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 well known for their secrecy. Uh, so I'm I don't want to put a value judgment on it per se. Uh, I don't want to uh, to limit the, the looking at the data about the secrecy. Uh, by trying to promote some belief system, you know, and say, oh, well, there's a conspiracy here, and they're trying to do something bad to people, and um, and and if if it doesn't fit that model, then uh, I'll ignore that data. You know, I'm just trying to look at all the data, and what I see is that most generally, that civilization as such, as we understand it, is something that does not happen accidentally. It's something that's kind of managed from the top down, and at the top, a lot is known that is not revealed at the public level, and especially like in the last 500 years with the Renaissance, that I think there, a, a good case could be made that there was a lot of knowledge that existed that was kind of uh, meted out at certain times and places so that certain things could happen. And I, and so I allude to that in uh, the handprint of Atlas in regard to the ley lines, that there was a, a big, big secret in California. Do you talk about that? Oops, say again. I just lost you just a little bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that I, in the handprint of Atlas, I allude to uh, a, a big secret that uh, was in, here in California. <laughs> concerning the ley lines. Yes, and that was actually a very interesting part of the book. I was I was um I was very impressed. In a in a in an odd way, this is exactly what I was talking about. I'm not quite sure like you made you made a very good case. I I'm not 
you know, I don't know whether it's true or not, but the, the, you did it a few times in the book where the the uh, the mystery that you were implying was so, I don't know how to say it, like it was so seductive. It was great. It was just as, it's almost like on a storytelling level, I was, I was totally uh, drawn in. So, it is a, it's like a mystery story. And, uh, but particularly this whole thing with John C. Fremont and the California gold rush, um, and how I came upon that was after I had this experience with the line of Dundee, I came back to California and I started looking at the areas around here in California. And one of them was Fremont's pyramid in Nevada, which is just over the California border here. Um, a very interesting place, and I started researching that and finding all kind of strange things about the area around Fremont's Pyramid. Uh, for example, I found out that the Paiute Indians who lived there had legends about little men with short legs, big heads, coming to their grandparents at night. And then there was also a legend of a lake serpent, like uh, the Loch Ness Monster, in Pyramid Lake. And right there at the shore of Pyramid Lake is this 600-foot, uh, I'll call it a mountain, but you could say it's a hill, 600 feet tall. It's three-sided. It's a pyramid. Uh, I'm absolutely convinced it's artificial. It's extremely eroded by water. That whole area was covered in water 13,000 years ago. It was a vast inland sea. Uh, I think they called it uh, Lake Lahoatan, um, and that all drained out, um, out of Nevada, out of California. California was flooded, too, the whole Central Valley. All that drained out, so you have the topography we have today. But that uh, all that water eroded that pyramid, and I went there and looked at it in 1988, and I could tell that that was water erosion, and I thought of the Sphinx. And I had not read John Anthony West. I knew nothing about Schwaller de Lubitsch at that time. But I thought, I said, that looks just like the surface of the Sphinx. And I know this is water erosion, not wind erosion. And therefore, the Sphinx, that's water erosion there. So that, you know, the Sphinx has got to be very old, at least twelve or 13,000 years old, just like this, because I knew when that happened, that was about 15 to 12,000 years ago, the lake was there. You know, it was at the end of the Ice Age, and all that, that water melted and, and, and caused that erosion to occur. Well, I studied that, and I started looking at other places in California, and I developed another alignment, which eventually led all the way to the Great Pyramid. Um, but I got very interested because... Um, uh, about John C. Fremont, he named that that pyramid, and I started looking into his expedition. It was his second expedition. His first expedition was uh, to map parts of the Oregon Trail, I believe, and the second expedition he was to, to finish all of that Oregon Trail mapping work, so they would be continuous all the way from the known area back in the Midwest all the way to Oregon. But he came down into California, and it wasn't his actual orders to do so. He had no business in this part of the country. And he came down here through uh, Nevada and 
camped at Pyramid Lake and saw the pyramid. And so I studied all that, and I began learning some real weird things about his expedition, like he carried along twelve pound howitzer cannon with him all thousands of miles across rugged country. His commanding officer didn't want him to carry this cannon. It had no use whatsoever. Why did he carry this cannon? And then he dumps it just a little bit south of Lake Tahoe, finally, which is only about 90, 80, 90 miles from Pyramid Lake and that big pyramid. So I got to looking at all of that and his visit to Sutter's Fort. I started looking at the geomorphology of Sutter's Fort. I, I looked at how Fremont came into California from Pyramid Lake uh, through the Sierra Nevada Mountains and passing through the Indian village of Coloma. And I knew there that, of course, Coloma is where gold was discovered in 1848 by John Marshall, who was working for Sutter. They had just built a sawmill up there. Well, in 1844, Fremont and Kit Carson pass right through this area, and all kind of little odd things was happening during this passage. So basically what I concluded from the information I developed was that Fremont must have had some secret maps or something. And he knew there was gold in California, uh, and his job was to come in here and verify that. So that's what I'm talking about in the handprint of Atlas, that I believe that the whole gold rush with John Marshall dis supposedly discovering the gold was simply staged so that there could be this great influx of gold seekers coming in from all parts of the globe. It was the largest migration of men in the history of the world. Uh, and I think it still is today. I'm not sure about that, but I know at the time it was the largest migration in the history of the world. How could they accomplish this with Marshall finding a few nuggets of gold in the tail race of that, uh, uh, that mining operation, that uh, log flume operation? How could he do that? Um, bring all these people in. Uh, th that's a story in itself. I don't even discuss that in uh, the handprint of Atlas, but there was a great amount of publicity given to his little discovery there. But I explain why they chose Coloma as the site for that, what I believe was a stage discovery. Uh, and, and that was on a, uh, uh, basically what you could call a ley line, and it, it connected to Pyramid Lake and this giant pyramid which I think is part of a system of uh, energy transport related to the Great Pyramid. I believe that Fremont's Pyramid and the Great Pyramid were operated by the same civilization, built by the same civilization. And that, that you're implying that would be the Atlanteans? Yes, I believe, I believe the Great Pyramid was built by the Atlanteans and that it was a worldwide system, and part of that system was what is presently called Fremont's Pyramid. Um, you know, today, Fremont's Pyramid, if you looked at it, you'd see an eroded mountain peak, about 600 feet tall, very much rounded off and eroded with water. Uh, but if <laughs> the way I would imagine it to look, <clears throat> excuse me, from, um, from the material around the lake, there's this white substance that coats a lot of the, the rocks around the lake. And I believe originally... Fremont's Pyramid was a perfectly sharp, three-sided pyramid, like a tetrahedron, coated with this white substance and polished to mirror perfection. 
and it was some kind of phase conjugate mirror with the Great Pyramid. Uh, and, and, and a further thing that suggests that is its position geologically on the surface of the Earth, that it's, uh, it's a very stable site in terms of tectonic plate movement. So um, um, I, I developed this material over a long period of time, and it, but it all hangs together. There's a lot of detail. It gets into uh, California history. It gets into even earlier old Spanish novels and, and uh, all sorts of little bits and pieces of information. They all hang together. They all agree and point to the idea that it was secretly known hundreds of years ago, at least, that um, there was this vast gold field in California, uh, but they were going to keep it in secret until just the right time. So the the discovery by John Marshall in 1848 was the time the people who had the secret information, that was the time they decided we're going to let everybody know about it, and we're going to develop this gold field now, and we're going to populate California, etc. It was, it was a very um, momentous event that tied into a much larger plan for the development of the human race. And and um, you just retold that story here in just a few minutes, and, and I will have to tell the uh, people listening, you know that was a great part of the book. I was totally, um, you know, wrapped up. It was it was it was very engaging and very interesting. And uh, and you the mysteries that you allude to were were uh, so, you know, almost uh, magical in their intensity. Uh, yes, um, and I felt that in over the years as I studied this, it's quite an adventure to go to Pyramid Lake and then to study out these other places, and even um, I don't go into a lot of detail in the book about finding the white rock, which is a marker on this line. Uh, it's a ley line, basically, but what do I mean by a ley line? We might get into that a little bit later, uh, but um, briefly, this is a line of tension stress in the landscape created by continental drift, and this particular line runs from Fremont's Pyramid, on the shore of Pyramid Lake, all the way across the landscape to Coloma, California, the site of the gold discovery, and then on across California, and um, there's a, a white rock in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada Mountains here in California, right on the edge of the Sacramento Valley. And that rock is covered with this same kind of white substance, I don't know what that substance is. I've looked at it closely at Pyramid Lake. Uh, it's like a very thick white paint. It would be interesting if someone would, when, someone would uh, analyze that material, but it could almost be like, I don't know, limestone or something, but it's very white. It's, it seems to me to be an artificial material, like a paint. Um, and what further uh, supports that view is that these white rocks are actually ringed around Pyramid Lake. You'll find them all the way around the shore of the lake. As, uh, and some people think that the Indians, the Paiutes, uh, put them there for ceremonial reasons. But what I think it was, that whole lake was ringed by white covered rock, um, and it all broken up uh, and eroded over thousands of years. So now you you have what you see there, but originally that was probably a, an, an amazing temple area where you'd have this uh, mirror finish uh, 
pyramid of white surrounded by a little lake there that also has a causeway maybe running around it with uh, this white type of uh, hard material covering all the rock formations and walkways and everything. And But then this rock there on the, uh, the foothills of the Sierras, it also has exactly the same covering. That's why it's called white rock. Um, so it was an adventure to find all this bit by bit. It, uh, to tell it in the book really doesn't capture the amazement I had as I slowly pieced all this together. Uh, and it's, it continues to this day, you know, um, uh, amazing things with the whole phenomena of lays and ley lines. Now, now uh, I st- a little bit I'm going to jump back to a question I started before where these things along a line, whether that be um, the line of Dundee or the line that, that, that makes up, you know, Pyramid Rock. Now, there would be... You imply that there's some secret knowledge going on there. And then as as I was reading it, I thought also that instead of so much like the reason certain towns were named um, could have been less, uh, you know, secret knowledge being seeped into the society, but it could have been something welling up from the unconscious. It right. could have been um, like a... Um, the result of like hidden forces that inspired people to pick these locations to build a town, um, and right. and perhaps people were unknowingly drawn to this to that point on the line, uh, you know, by some sort of unknown influence. And to me, that that I that uh, that you know something that can uh, intersect with our our hidden consciousness to me is 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 equally if not more exciting as a, as an idea than yeah. just um you know men in a in a in a closed room you know whispering secrets and, and creating a plan right right but i would say this that and I, I don't go into it deeply in the book i i think you from reading it you get the sense i leave that question somewhat open um but um uh, i've said this time and again to the few people i have talked to about my book directly that um, uh, I don't know where to draw the line between synchronicity and the you know the kind of topological emergence you're talking about of psychic phenomena, people intuitively being drawn to a place, and someone who actually would approach it from a standpoint they're using no science, uh, psychic ability at all, no intuition at all. They just happen to have a book over here that they've inherited, and it's got some maps in it, and the lines are already drawn for them. It's kind of paint by the numbers, you know. And that, I admit, that's pretty boring. But, it, I mean, it is kind of interesting from the standpoint of uh, conspiracy theory, you know, that, um, you know, somebody has some secret knowledge and they're using it, yeah. But what I think is it's a combination of both, that... Um, uh, and, and in any given case, sometimes maybe you can, there's enough evidence there where you can figure out which it is. And I'll, I'll give you an example. I think in the case of the drawing of state and national boundary lines, th- these are people who um, uh, are very practical. They're non-intuitive people, at least on the face of it. Uh, I tend, I would tend to say that they do have secret maps, and they're they're drawing these lines according to knowledge that has been given to them through a tradition. Where it came from, I don't know, you know, but um, uh, it's highly suggestive to me that that's the case. 
On the other hand, um, some of these other things, and particularly uh, some of the things that happened to you recently, like your Byron line, I think probably some of your listeners know a little bit about that because you've had it on your website. Yep, yep. um, uh, See, something like the Byron line is an example of that could very well be topological emergence going on. Um, And so it's hard to, in any given case, to say certainly what's really happening. Certainly something's happening, and it's not coincidence. So I'd like let's talk about the whole thing about coincidence, if we could. Sure, I sure, to, happily. I want to get into this whole thing, um, uh, and I, w- I want to use this uh, Larry Arnold's work. Uh, we we could talk about that just a little bit. Great, and um, for folks who just uh, you know who don't know who Larry Arnold is, um, and I actually have not read his book. His book is titled A Blaze. And he uh, was just interviewed recently on another podcast series called Banal of America. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes here. But that is an excellent interview. And the, uh, the, he discusses spontaneous human combustion. He takes it very seriously and looks at the, uh, the history of it and, and uh, looks at case after case after case. And he makes a point that there are very real patterns you can find in these cases. And they're very, very odd uh, things that take place in the event of spontaneous human combustion. It's not merely just uh, people lighting on fire, but they seem to light on fire in a, in a way that creates a very fine ash. It seems to be happening from the inside out. So all these odd things that don't match uh, like normal, uh, you know, like a, simply they simply just didn't uh, pour kerosene on themselves and light themselves on fire in that realm. And then at uh, he talks about it in the audio interview, and he implies that he was doing research in England, and he found three points along a map, and you've you've actually read this sesh, so just chime in. Yeah, yeah, okay. Now, um, and you were very kind to send me a copy of A Blaze. I just got it uh, the last day or so, uh, and I've only had an opportunity to skim it. Uh, it's a it's a, a large book. It's nearly five hundred pages long, so it, and it's quite exhaustive on the subject of the spontaneous human combustion, or SHC. Um, And uh, Larry Arnold has this theory that he's developed that the the SHC is related to ley lines. It's very interesting. I think he's on to something here. Uh, But his theory, unfortunately, has the same flaw in it, that all the other ley line theories have. That is, he's not scientifically rigorous in his analysis, and he's really open to people like the psychop people and you know the scientific materialist. Particularly, I, th- I think of E. C. Krupp, who I quote in my own book, who is very critical of all the ley line researchers. They're saying you can get three points on a map and they can line up and it means nothing whatsoever it's just a coincidence it's just a statistical probability that you're going to get three points lining up it's no big deal and you can get four points lining up and and so but see he's approaching his fire lane theory this way um but that doesn't mean that he's really wrong in essence it's just that his method of analysis is weak um 
And he has this map in his book about proposed fire lanes for Great Britain in which I think there's something like 50 sites all over Great Britain that he's pinpointed where there were these spontaneous human fires. 50? That's mu yeah. much more than I would have guessed. I would have guessed. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, it is it's fascinating. Well, and he said that uh, for whatever reason, it's, it looked like England had more spontaneous human combustions there than any other place. And, I don't know about that. Oh, and, and I would just add that it's another little uh, odd little fact is that England certainly seems to have more uh, crop circles than any other place. I, for... oh, yeah, yeah, uh, that's right. I I never really gave that much thought. I, I I assumed it was because there were there was more interest in researching it over there. But it might be that there's an actual cluster going on. Uh, I don't know. Um, th that's something else to be looked into. Uh, but uh, his his basic technique here. He, he, I think in one of these he's referring to a fire lane number one. And he has as many as 10 sites on a single line going along the eastern coast of, uh, of uh, England there um, and just eyeballing it. Um, I'm talking here about the visual estimate. Uh, what is the visual estimate? Well, you can imagine, a, a, let's say, a, a, an art historian. He looks at a painting by Poussin or, or Rembrandt or something. And... Uh, uh, he looks at it, and by the way the, the arms of the figures are arranged and the urn and the flowers and the lake in the distance, he can see that the artist has composed all these elements according to a five-pointed star, and he can actually see where the lines of that star are located on the picture. You know, they're, they're implied by the way all these forms are organized. Um, he's doing a visual estimate. Uh, uh, he's doing of the of the straight line averages of undulating forms. In statistics, you have a scatter dot diagram. Uh, uh, let's say of um, uh, well, it could be of anything. It could just be data points of information, and you put it on a on a page, and you have all these data points in a scatter. In doing a visual estimate, you could say, well, what's, what are all those data points uh, aiming toward, or what does it seem like, where's the average line that they're describing? They're kind of, they're kind of scattered out in a, in a certain direction, and that, and that implies a line going through them. What's the average? How could, I, how could I figure that out? You can kind of eyeball it. If, if they're very close together, you could kind of say, well, the average line is right along here, you know, and you draw this line. And in statistics, this is exactly how the statistical process works with a professional statistician. He would do a visual estimate first, and then he'd go back, he'd enter all these data points into a Cartesian grid, and then he would apply various uh, analytical mathematical functions like the least squares line function and by just simply doing a basic mathematical formula he could determine exactly where that line that average line falls uh, and then he could look at his visual estimate and say yeah well, it's pretty close you know uh, but the actual lines right here it almost coincides well this is the way I've approached the whole thing of geomorphology and ley lines is in doing visual estimates. And I, 
the more you do it, the better you get at it. And I'm sure, Mike, you being an artist, you could do this yourself. The more you study geographical maps, you can see how the landforms undulate and what the straight line of that undulation is. And you begin to see that uh, the, the, the land shapes are very cohesive, very coherent. And the same thing with these fire lanes is that I'm seeing patterns here, but not necessarily the patterns he's describing with the straight lines. It's kind of like seeing uh, faces in a cloud. Um, so, so maybe it, what he's describing here with the straight lines are only faces in a cloud, but um, he, he might be approximating towards some real information here. What would have to be done is all these data points would have to be entered into a Cartesian grid of the map of England, and then you do least squares line analysis or second polynomial regression function analysis, and you'd begin to see what the patterns are there. And this is what I'm talking about in the handprint of Atlas in general for the whole Earth, that this kind of a multiple uh, regression and correlation analysis can be applied to the whole Earth, and it can be applied to any kind of data point on the Earth. It can be applied to geological formations like mountain ranges, river courses, uh, but it can also be applied to things like megalithic sites, which would be ley lines, uh, or would be the, the lays of a ley line. So what I'm, I'm uh, proposing is that um, these ley lines can be uh, demonstrated objectively using the science of statistics. I have not done so. I've done visual estimates that I am convinced are extremely close. In many cases, the information is so, the data points are so close together that um, I'm sure that I have the right line without question, but you could apply a, a regression analysis to it, and I'm sure you'd come up with exactly the same line. Um, and so this is what Larry Arnold could do if he would apply my, uh, my approach to this. You see, he's doing the same thing with his fire lanes that I mean, Michelle did with UFO sightings back in the 50s. Uh, uh, Michelle called, them, uh, called it orthotinny, and he found clusters of UFO sightings in the French countryside, and he began to see there were alignments between them, and they were also connected to sites of uh, like ancient barrows, earth mounds, standing stones, and he began to see a connection between those. So he called that orthotinny, and he started drawing lines and saying these are, uh, these are the ley lines that uh, are connected to UFOs and these fixtures on the earth. But then Jacques Vallée came along and looked at it and said, you know, it's not... Uh, it's not, it's not scientifically rigorous uh, because uh, you could draw a lot of other lines and come up with other alignments. It's a bit arbitrary. And he, he rejected uh, Michelle's theory. And, th and there it has lain for decades. Now, what I'm coming along with is an entirely new approach. The only person in the paranormal research community I know of that's even would even... Uh, recognized as Dean Reedon because he supplied statistics to psychic phenomena himself, so he'd know what I'm talking about. Uh, but uh, using a multiple regression and correlation analysis, you could objectively determine where the alignments are between 
for example, lays, and I'm talking about uh, earthen mounds, stone pyramids, standing stones, that kind of thing, and things like UFOs, or included in that is this mysterious phenomenon of human combustion. The the, the human combustion phenomenon is very real, and uh, um, you and I spoke when I received this book, and I uh, initially, I said, I think this connects to the Philadelphia experiment, if you recall. Well, I skimmed through the book, and indeed, uh, Arnold does connect it to the Philadelphia experiment. Uh, unfortunately, he's not all that well-read on the Philadelphia experiment, so he does have a couple of misstatements in his text about it. But um, uh, generally, he's on the right track here. He's looking at high energies and that kind of thing. And I think that the spontaneous human combustion is related to the energies of the lays, and it's a, it's scalar in nature. It's internal, um, and it does connect to the Philadelphia experiment, which does connect to ley lines. So, um, yeah, I think Arnold's on to something there. Huh, this is fascinating, and, and I'm very cautious to um, – I've read so much stuff about the Philadelphia experiment, and some of it's so contradicting, and, and it seems mm-hmm. like a lot of people – it's the, the the research uh, you know I, i'm i'm left um mystified because it seems like everyone has a different theory as well as uh, you know like different dates and different you know you know what they think may or may not have happened um but right. uh, but it is and i will say like one of the things that i do like about it and and this is just uh you know it is a very seductive and entertaining story uh yeah. which which is uh, you know that doesn't make it true in essence, but I do I do enjoy the the uh, um, you know look you know reading about it and and uh, and you did not mention you don't talk much in the in the handprint of Atlas at all about the the uh, Philadelphia experiment, do you? Uh, I do mention it. I yeah. do uh, in fact even have a map about it. Um, oh, that's right. There is some maps when you do the 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 lines along the east coast and you, you, right. you point to it, but uh, you don't go into any depth. I don't go into any depth. I do mention, I wanted to touch base on it. Uh, I do think the Philadelphia experiment really happened. Um, it, it is a very interesting story, uh, and they made a movie out of it, not a very good movie, but uh, uh, it, it is uh, compelling. Um, I, I, I was skeptical about it for many years. Uh, I heard about it, I read about it in Uninvited Visitors way back in the late 60s when that book first came out. That was my first exposure to it. I thought that it was just uh, the rantings of a madman, and, and the, you know the, those uh, Linday letters were put in the back of that book, and um, uh, and I just dismissed it. But uh, then the, the Burlitz book came out, you know, and more information came out, and and even in the last few years, there's been some books written on the Philadelphia experiment. Some are better than others. Uh, there's a lot more information out about it now than than there was just a few years ago because uh, some of these people have done original research into it and dug up a few more things. Uh, but what it really comes down to is those Alinde letters and what he said in them. And also for myself, I I know a little bit about some of these things too from another perspective. So I uh, I take it very seriously. Uh, and but let's just look at the Alinde letters. He's talking about the Philadelphia experiment. Some some uh, writers and some very good writers on this subject make a big deal out of uh, that Alinde was in Philadelphia and there was no Philadelphia experiment. What he saw was something out at sea, which is true. 
But if you read the letters, what Allende says is uh, the experiment continued after World War II, and that was when they did the Philadelphia experiment. No, Allende did not witness that. Uh, he only heard about it. And what he heard was that they teleported a ship from the Philadelphia Naval Dock to Newport News, Virginia. That's the two things that grabbed me. Uh, much later on, when I was doing my ley line research, it hit me that those are two significant points in the Earth's surface. Um, and I, I would say for the re listener to read my book on this, but um, basically those are two highly significant points uh, where it would be, you're using longitudinal electricity, which was discovered by Nikola Tesla, and these are two key nodal points where it's a very good spot to transmit longitudinal electric signals. So how, did, how was it that Carlos Allende picked Philadelphia Naval Yard and Newport News, Virginia, as the points of teleportation when that's exactly the, the places where that would be most likely given that kind of technology? It suggests to me he was telling something that really did happen. Um, so all of this fits together. Uh, um, phenomena like spontaneous human combustion, which was involved in the Philadelphia experiment. Uh, you know, some of these people in the spontaneous human combustion, they burn for a long time uh, after the initial event. And that's exactly what happened in the Philadelphia experiment. The people they, in one of the stories, Lindy tells that one of the sailors burned for 18 days, and in the spontaneous human combustion book by Larry Arnold, a blaze, uh, there's uh, somebody there who burned for several days internally. I unfortunately, when I was a small child, I actually witnessed someone being electrocuted. Uh, it was a tragic uh, event. Uh, the person was on a high power tower. Uh, it was a young man. He climbed up there on a dare, and he got stuck, and uh, he couldn't get down, and he, he hit the high-power wire, and it just blew him up. But he was still up there. When we came along, we saw this young man up, and the fire trucks were already trying to get him out, and smoke was just coming out of this poor man. And this is what happens to the body when it burns like that. It, uh, it burns internally in electrical fires, and a lot of these spontaneous human combustion fires, um, they talk about smoke coming out of the person. And it, it's an internal thing. So, um, and, and Larry Arnold, he's connecting this fire phenomenon with lays as such, and he makes note that uh, um, the, an archaic meaning of the term lay is something like, um, uh, let's see, what was it? Uh, oh, it meant to sparkle, to shine, to flame. So fire is an important part of this whole phenomenon of lays. Think about um, compost piles. Notice how they heat up, and you know it's it's a biological heat that's going on. Life is heat. Um, the very term uh, lay you have a, a, in ancient Egyptian you have a lion. It's a recumbent lion. What does that mean? It means that lion has eaten 
He's not active. He's not hunting. He's, he's lying there. He's digesting his food. It's a hieroglyph about digestion. And in the word alchemy, it's derived from ancient Egyptian. Al is lion. Kim meant to burn. So you have lion burn. It's the burning of the lion. What's the burning of the lion? The digestion of the lion. All life force is a kind of burning. So all of this relates the the spontaneous human combustion, Philadelphia experiment, uh, but also something like teleportation is part of this phenomenon um, uh, because the same kind of things going on there, the transformation. And one other thing that people wouldn't believe, time travel. It's all related. Um, this is the kind of stuff that I love to explore. And uh, uh, this has been this is so fascinating. One of the things I'm going to do when I uh, post this, and I want to jump to another thing, I want to talk about your other books a little bit, um, is... Uh, you did an interview with uh, Greg Bishop on Radio Mysterioso, where you talked uh, at great length about the trilogy of books that you wrote, and I want to talk about those briefly here. And um, you also did an interview with Don Ecker, which I thought was quite good. I'll put both those links up uh, oh, so great. anyone who can who connects with this can also listen to those two interviews. Right, um, and, and that, that might cover some things that we can't get into today, but you know, there's a lot in my book. I just want to briefly say that it's a lot about geophysics and continental drift. I have a whole theory of continental drift, and I have a theory that the Earth's axis of rotation is artificial. And uh, I, you know, if you get the book and read it, I have about a hundred maps in there and explanations for all this. Now, the the point where you talk about the the uh, Earth's rotation being altered, f yeah. uh, so that the the Earth is now at a seventeen percent tip where the uh, the north and south pole don't exactly align with the um, the uh, you know that the, the earth is rotating in a slight angle as it goes around the yeah. sun uh, yeah. this is an odd little thing so when i was uh, i did a posting which uh, got a fair amount of people commenting on and uh, it may not seem that interesting but i was uh, i go camping quite often i camp alone and i uh, found this meadow and I uh, go very, very light when I camp, especially in the summertime. So I took a very, very thin sleeping pad, and it was going to be a beautiful night, so I didn't bother taking a tent. So in order to sleep, I had to find a very, very flat spot. You know, and this is a field that was rocky and lumpy and big and open. So I kind of walked around and walked around, and then I found this one little spot that I could lay down in. It was nice and flat. It was the perfect spot. And I laid the pad down as the sun was setting. Um, uh, the sun had gone down, and the moon was rising. There was a full moon. It was spectacular, coming up over the Tetons where I live. And I had with me the Kindle, uh, my Kindle, where I had downloaded your book. So I had a little headlamp, and I was and I was lying there, and I had just started reading. And I was reading the section where you talk about the lake in Africa. It's Lake Victoria, correct? Yes. Yes, Lake Victoria in Africa, and how you were postulating that 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 may have been an impact point for uh, potentially an artificial object that was deliberately uh, aimed at the Earth in order to tip it off its uh, its axis a little bit in order to um, to create what would be the uh, starting point of, of uh, modern agriculture. Now, right. the uh, as I was laying there, 
as I was reading that exact part of the book, I actually jumped a little bit because something swooped very low above my head. And I looked up, and it was with a full moon. There was a lot of ambient light and, a, and a, an owl, which I think was a barred owl. I didn't get a big, big, good, big view of it, but it was a large owl. Um, flew up and landed on a tree very close to me. In the morning, I realized it was the closest tree that it could have landed on. And, uh, and the thing that was odd, I watched it for maybe probably less than five minutes, maybe ten minutes or five minutes. Um, it, uh, the tree that it landed on was exactly bisected with the moon. It was a very, very striking image. I did an illustration of it on my site. And yeah, uh, so in great. theory, I guess if, if looking from the owl's eyes, it would have, uh, the shadow of the tree would have crossed my face, basically, um, because yeah. that was exactly where, where the view would have been. Um, so, uh, you know, that, that theory about uh, whether or not the, the uh, uh, you know, that, this is where I get back almost into the mythology thing, yeah. where um, that was such an interesting sighting. I've seen a lot of owls. I take them very seriously when I see an owl. Uh, and then um, to have it happen right as I was reading that point of the book, um, you know, I, I don't know whether that's a literal truth that uh, an artificial object collided with the earth in order to, to, uh, to have an influence on human history. But what I can say is that with the, the owl, um, it just forces me just to pay attention, very, very close attention. I think so. You know, it's, um, it's pointing to something, all right, and there's a lot of uh, symbology in the owl and the moon, and, um, you know, and, and you were oriented in that experience to the owl and the moon, it sounds like. You know, yeah, we were all lined up, yeah. You know, so it's, uh, I think it's some kind of information there for you, and uh, and that's for you to decipher uh uh, it's a very interesting experience, and that was a great painting you did. I really enjoyed seeing that. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. What I do is I draw um, with pen on paper, and then I uh, just yeah, I have a computer here, and for publishing on like a blog format and stuff, I, I just scan the image, and then there's a way I can color it uh, using the computer. And I find that for you know people who are going to be looking at that online, you can you can actually create a pretty darn tidy image, and I've been enjoying using the computer, which is something if I turn the clock back, Ten years or so ago, I, I would have never said that. I would have dismissed the computer with contempt. But now I'm uh-huh. I'm actually using it as a tool and and uh, and, and enjoying it greatly. That reminds me, uh, they had uh, Hal uh, Al Hirschfeld on television some time back uh, when he was uh, he was approaching 100 at that time, I think, and and uh, he was working with a computer stylus, trying to draw with it. He said, "I would need another lifetime to be able to." To, to use this, you know, uh, it takes some uh, practice, you know, the new technologies. Well, it does, and, and I actually don't use the stylus much. You know, I actually yeah. draw with a pen and paper, and I and I and I that is ex- completely organic for me at this point. So then I just put that on the scanner, and then I, I uh, you know, I'll play with the color a little bit and maybe right. erase some of the pen lines. That's more what I'll do rather than add well, new pen lines. I mostly just erase a little bit. I have to tell you, Mike, I really enjoy your artwork and the cartoons, uh, and you're a great caricaturist, you know, uh, we both do that some. And oh, thank you so much. Yeah, that, that actually means great. a lot. Um, and, and uh, uh, yeah, that, it's funny, the illustration style that I have, if, if we turn the clock back and, and, uh, looked at my, uh, you know, my, 
math book in fourth grade, you know, the cartoons uh-huh. along the border uh, look very, very similar to the kind of stuff I do today. Yeah, yeah. We we don't change all that much, you know, the essences there, especially artists like us, you know, uh, it, it uh, emerges early in life. And I was drawing at age of three myself, and, um, and you know, you learn a little bit, but um, the essence is there from the beginning. Yeah. Hey, um, talk a little bit about the trilogy of books. You have a trilogy of, of fiction yeah. books. Yeah. Um, it's uh, all about Nikola Tesla, who I felt was the forgotten man of... Uh, scientific history and and let me just interrupt here real quick yeah. and nikola tesla does play a very large part in in the handprint of atlas yes um because uh tesla was i believe he was using the ley lines and uh, in a very uh, fascinating way uh, uh, particularly when he was in colorado uh at pike's peak um he was using the the, the structure of the rocky mountains to send longitudinal electric waves and he made some startling discoveries there. I think he discovered the basic principle they later on used for the Philadelphia experiment. And he, he was doing it with water. Um, he, he was transmitting hydrogen from uh, the Indian Ocean, and it was precipitating as a fog in his laboratory in Colorado Springs. And uh, after this happened, he studied what was going on, and he said that he believed he could transport, transport water to deserts. Um, so it's suggestive to me that he had latched on to the idea of teleportation using longitudinal electricity. Uh, it was just a matter of engineering it precisely where you could move bigger things than water molecules. But, um, well, Tesla's fascinating character. I discovered him in 1991. Uh, I had never heard of him all my life. And what really grabbed me was when I discovered that he was pretty good friends with Mark Twain. That The reason that grabbed me was I played Mark Twain. I've done many things in my life, and I, I, I look upon myself as sort of a multimedia artist, and I've, I've done acting, and I've been a, an entertainer, puppeteer, magician, ventriloquist, um, and also caricaturist. I've drawn tens of thousands of people. Uh, so I've worked in this entertainment field, for decades, and but I also played Mark Twain on riverboats. I had a, a full-length Mark Twain show, and I researched his life meticulously, um, read all of his books, and uh, and I did research at uh, UC Berkeley, and uh, so. Oh, here, uh, let me just interrupt. This is an odd yeah. little thing. When I first moved to New York City, this is this yeah. is I um uh was in the dormitory at NYU. I was a student there for one year and uh, one of the most important chapters of my life, a beautiful neighborhood. And Mark Twain lived on 10th Street, right down the street from my dormitory. And then just a few doors down from my dormitory was Al Hirschfeld's uh, gallery. Yeah. Yeah. Just there, just a little aside. Just I thought that was odd that that the last couple of people you... um, That was 10th Street... um, Between University and 5th, I believe. uh, Okay. Yeah, gotcha. That's kind of in Greenwich Village, isn't it? Oh, very much so. Yeah, yeah. Right yeah, hard yeah. Okay, yeah. I didn't know exactly where you're talking about. He lived there in uh, uh, about 1904, right along in there. And he could have easily right walked to um, to uh, uh, Tesla's laboratory. Um, yes. Well, actually, by that time, um, 
Tesla didn't have a laboratory in that area. Um, and uh, it's kind of hard to say what happened between Mark Twain and Tesla during that period. Uh, 1903 was when uh, J.P. Morgan stopped financing Tesla's big tower there on Long Island. And uh, Tesla's kind of, career kind of eclipsed at that point. But um, Twain and Tesla knew each other very well in the 1890s. And Tesla did have a, a, a laboratory in lower New York there. Um, but anyway, I, uh, you know, I discovered Tesla, and I discovered he knew Mark Twain, and yet I had never heard of Tesla. I had, I had read all about Mark Twain's life, and not once, not in his autobiography, not in volu voluminous correspondence, did I ever find any mention of Tesla, and I, I read a lot, you know, um, um, I, I didn't read it all because a lot of it's not even published, but um, I couldn't find anything. I was really surprised, so I started looking into that, and I just thought, wow, what a subject for a science fiction movie or something, you know, and why it hasn't ever been done, and uh, now there has been some uh, fictionalization of Tesla, uh, like the prestige is, comes immediately to mind. There's been a few other things. But no one, I felt, had ever really exploited the subject of Nikola Tesla. So my entry into it was through this thing, his connection to Mark Twain. And I began researching it just over many years. And then finally, I ended up writing Wonder of the Worlds, uh, which was a novel about Nikola Tesla and Mark Twain going to Mars. And uh, that was the first novel in the trilogy. It originally wasn't going to be a trilogy. It was just Wonder of the Worlds. The one thing I noted after I finished writing, and I said I've really left it open there for more story. I realized it was a lot of other things could be written, but I didn't intend to write a trilogy. But eventually I went on and I wrote Metamorphosis, which takes place in 1915, um, and it involves Nikola Tesla and Harry Houdini, uh, Houdini's in the first story, too, so it, it continues on into the San Francisco um, Panama Pacific Exposition of 1915. There's a whole story there. Uh, and then the final novel is The Lost Pleiad, and it's set in the 1939 New York World's Fair. Every one of the novels is set at a World's Fair. The first one's the Chicago World's Fair of 1893, and then the Panama Pacific Exposition in San Francisco, 1915, and then the World's Fair of 1939. And in each one of them, Tesla's in conflict with the Martians in some way, but there's a lot of other things going on as well. And they're all meticulously researched historically. Everything that happens in the stories, uh, anything that would be public knowledge, that's part of history, and fictional storyline is nested within the known history. So it's kind of like reading it and thinking, well, maybe maybe some of this might could have happened, you know. And, and you know, if you the more you know about Tesla, the, the stranger it gets, and it doesn't really seem all that far fetched. Some of the things I have there, there's a lot of legends about Tesla building air, real air, airships, you know. And I tap into all that mythology, all that history, and uh, I think it's a pretty interesting trilogy. You know, I I enjoyed writing it and I think people would enjoy reading it. This is interesting. So so Walter Bosley is has just published a book called Empire of the Wheel. 
Yeah. And it's a nonfiction book, and I understand you did a little work with that. Yeah, um, I helped him a little. Yeah, and then uh, that book takes place in 1915 in California. Correct. Which is a, which is an odd coincidence that your other book took it place is. in 1915 in California. And then I will also say Walter Bosley wrote another book, and I understand you helped him on that one too, called um, Latitude 33, where he discusses uh, Disneyland and yes. and the uh, ley lines that converge on the carousel. And yes. and uh, presently we live in a world without uh, world's fairs anymore. <laughs> and in in an odd way, I think that Disneyland uh, and Disney World you know, sort of took over the role of the World's yeah. Fair. Yes, particularly Disney World. Uh, yeah, With Epcot Center, yes. Yeah, yeah, it, uh, yeah. Disney even used that term, a permanent World's Fair, is what he had in mind. And, you know, Disneyland grew out of World's Fairs. That's where, uh, that's how Disney largely financed the, uh, the, the substance of Disneyland, uh, was by, he would get corporations to... Um, sponsor attractions at World's Fairs, and particularly it was uh, the 1964 New York World's Fair, I think, if I'm remembering right, where they did the great moments with Mr. Lincoln, and I think also the Carousel of Progress, uh, GE, I think, was the sponsor for that. And so you see, he was hes a very savvy guy. You know, he got the big corporations to pay for the attraction, and once it was over at World's Fair, he brought him back to Disneyland. And so there's a definite connection between Disneyland, Disney World, and the World's Fairs. And in fact, um, I was working at a theme park some years ago. Uh, part of the inception or, or the creation of Wonder of the Worlds, it goes way back, even before I knew about Tesla. And I used to think, wow, wouldn't it be interesting for somebody to write a novel about something some kind of science fiction storyline, something really weird happening at a World's Fair, or even better yet, some kind of giant amusement park like a Disney World, but maybe even bigger than Disney World. You know, and I and I and I had that idea for a long time, and finally it was realized when I wrote Wonder of the Worlds because if you look at the 1893 World's Fair, it really was fabulous, and even to this day, in some ways, it, it was more amazing than Disney World, and. Um, so some of these early World's Fair up to about 1915, they were amazing places. Uh, even the 1915 uh, Panama Pacific Exposition, they had a complete Ford assembly line. They were showing people how they made cars. You know, just amazing stuff like that that you don't see that today. You know, so um, yeah, there's a definite connection between the Disney theme parks and the World's Fairs, and I wanted to tap into the mythology of that in the trilogy. So um, it's, you know, I think I did that too, and it, it, it creates a kind of uh, surreal excitement to the whole thing. Very much so. Very much so. Um, hey, we've been going at it for just about two hours. It's a little, actually, it's a little shy of two hours. Um, how are you doing? You need a break or? No, no, I'm doing fine. Great. Uh, um, yeah, I'm open to talking about anything, however long you want to. Yeah, let's go for go. a little bit longer. This is, okay. and I, and I, it's funny. I don't think I'm going to need to edit much. I usually edit heavily, okay. and and uh, this is yeah. going so great. Uh, you're you're very uh, skilled speaker, and I'm I've been, uh, you know, just you're a great storyteller. This is awesome. Hey, uh, here, let's just the 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 uh, events of uh, my experience with the maps. Yes. I would love to. This was this was very, and that was the entire reason I searched you out, was just oh. because uh, 
I had heard you um, interviewed, I think, both on Don Eckert's uh, podcast series and then the Radio Mysterioso one where he talked about the, the three nonfiction books. And um, I uh, had interviewed Walter Bosley, talked about the, uh, the Disneyland book a little bit. And uh, I. Uh, by, by the way, I want to say this the Disneyland book Walter wrote, it's very good. And I feel that it hasn't been uh, received very well by the paranormal community. People aren't taking it seriously who haven't read it. And there's some very interesting information in that, very valid information. And I just like people to keep an open mind and, and take a look at that Disneyland book because um, and I have some of my ideas in that. Uh, so, yes, I'm, I'm defending myself as well. But um, Walter's experience with Alfred at the beginning of that. That was, um, that was so magical and powerful. Mm-hmm. Yes, I agree. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it was completely valid, and I think it was a real esoteric experience. Um, and even more so, as I heard him tell me this, and I thought about it, and I related to my own experiences. I think he had a real esoteric experience there. So I would uh, encourage people to take a look at that Disneyland book. There's some; it's very interesting. Now, now, just to, so if folks haven't read this, the, very early on in the, this discussion, I said, you know, my idea of ley lines is this, you know, guy in a tweed jacket walking around with a with a, a dowsing rod somewhere in the English countryside, and you you said, oh, that's Alfred Watkins, right? And yeah. then the, in very early on in the uh, Disneyland book, Walter Bosley, who I have interviewed on this program, uh, he um, he, as a boy, I believe he was a young teenager. Uh, talks about meeting a gentleman dressed very formally uh, who he met him at Disneyland while he was riding the carousel. Yes. And the the man turned out to be, as far as well, let's just say, he introduced himself and the man said he was uh, Arnold and then and then uh, his name was Arnold and then uh, Walter gave him uh, his... Uh, uh, it was Alfred, actually. Oh, excuse me, Ar- Alfred. I'm sorry, did I say Arnold? Yeah. 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 Um, did I say... Okay, so Alfred. And then... Okay. Um, Oh, this is the kind of stuff I can edit out. This kind of so yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, keep it in. <laughs> so uh, he uh, uh, he he meets a gentleman. The gentleman says yeah. his name is Alfred. He gives yeah. him a ticket and basically says, you know, the park is open for a few more hours. You can ride any ride you want with this ticket. We're leaving now. And yeah. and the man had a just a uh, he went on to he was very eloquent in talking about how the fellow was uh, had like a childlike exuberance about him. Yes. And then years later, he finds a photograph, and he says, this is the man I met in Disneyland. And the man's name was Alfred Watkins, and he wrote a book about ley lines. Mm -hmm. And I believe he died, like, in the 1920s. Mm -hmm. Right. So, yes, so there's a very magical, esoteric, mystical experience, Uh, you know, the... Uh, you know the the close well whatever the the someone you know could easily dismiss that story, but yes, um they could. and yeah. then but from that story emerges an entire uh, new narrative, right? And I just say one thing about that story that there's a lot of different ways you can look at it. You could just say it's a coincidence. Um, it could be a synchronicity. Um, it could also be the uh, phenomenon of the doppelganger. Uh, I've had experiences where I've had people approach me who look exactly like someone I know, and they talk just like the person. And um, So, um, you know, these things do happen, and they're significant in some way. 
so that's the way the, story, the, the book begins and what Walter found out about Disneyland. And then what I was able to tell him about what I knew, the whole thing together, it's an incredible story. Yeah, and it is a great read. And it's not a very big book. It's a short little book. No. And uh, and I believe it's uh, available on Kindle now. And um, yeah. so, yeah, I, I would encourage anyone to read that. And, and it's interesting. I have a, sort of a – be very careful how – you know, like uh, Kindle to me is an imperfect way to read a book. Yes. That said, there are books yeah. like Latitude 33 – the book about Disneyland that um, I simply can't go to a bookstore and buy it. Uh, the way right. I need to get that book is is in an electronic form like that. You can't get this information anywhere else in any other form, and this is what we have. My my books are e-books on Kindle now, and uh, um, you know if you want this information, this is how you're going to get it. So it's the wave of the future too. Yeah, and in uh, you know the the. Uh, uh, yeah, so it's very interesting. So, with the push of a button here at my desk, I have—I presently have access to. Um, I have all your books on my um, on my Kindle. I've only read the uh, oh. key to the Kindle. Uh, excuse me, the um, handprint of Atlas so far. And um, you were going to discuss. Oh, the, the, yes, uh, the the the, uh, owl, the owl, owl thing. No, not the owls. No. The the map thing. The map thing. Yeah. So, and I just we can. Uh, I would. I. The whole thing started, I did a psychic reading with a woman who I met under very synchronistic circumstances. Mm -hmm. Um, It was the very first reading I ever did with her. I've done a few. I trust her implicitly as a very powerful psychic. She was doing what amounted to rather mundane stuff about uh, myself. She was saying, like, oh, you should eat less salt, and, you know, you should eat more olive oil, and maybe kelp in your diet would be very helpful. And so this kind of, you know, very mundane advice, you know, coming to her from the great beyond. And then as she's saying this, and I actually have this posted in an audio format because I recorded it, and and as she's saying this, all of a sudden she goes, do you know Byron, Wyoming? Do you know Byron, North Dakota? Mm -hmm. And that came out of nowhere, totally out of the blue. Now, here, let me correct myself. What she actually said is, do you know Brian, Wyoming? Do you know Brian, North Dakota? And what I did is I had a pen in my hand, and I wrote on a piece of paper, I was taking notes, without knowing it, I wrote Byron. So I, she said one thing, I wrote down another thing. I've since gone back and talked with her about this, and she's like, oh, no, no, this is like an imperfect thing. Um, you know, it's whatever, like I'm translating from the great beyond. Don't don't get stuck on, you know, that. So, um, so somehow or another, early in the conversation, we both switched over from calling it Brian to calling it Byron. Right. Uh there, if you Google, I found Byron, North Dakota on a map, on Google Maps using the computer. Um, right. And then I never thought to look for Byron, Wyoming. Uh, I just kind of left it at that. I said, hi, isn't that interesting? Now, Byron, North Dakota is a county. And the map that you, when you get Google Maps, all it has is a little red marker. You type in Byron, North Dakota. Anyone can do this. And then it just a single red marker shows up in a farmer's field. It took me a little bit of research to figure out what that meant. And it was, it was actually a county. So uh, in a way, this, this uh, you know, the Internet, the computer, this, this thing that almost has sentience in some form, uh, the Internet, uh, just picked a spot on a map like that. Now, uh, months later, I get a copy of... Mac Tony's book, which I did illustrations for, um, yep. in the mail, and and uh, he had died at a very young age, very tragically. It was it was a tough thing for me. I was I felt like he was a good pal, and uh, but I get his book in the mail, 
and open it. And that same day, I get an email from someone who says, oh, check this out. And so I click on this link, and it's a photograph of 28 owls sitting on a fence. And uh, so these happened in the same day. And then I realized that they both happened in Missouri. You know, Mac Tony's lived in Kansas City, Missouri, and the event on the fence uh, took place in Missouri. So I did a kind of a Google check and tried to figure out the distance. And the mileage was 123 miles between where the owls were and where Mac Tony's apartment was. So the number 123 is something I pay attention to. It's like, okay, yeah. now here, this is, this is something that... Um, I knew, like I knew at a gut level, I knew that if I stretched a line between the owls, Mac Tony's apartment, and just let it stretch on northward, slightly northwestward, um, it would pass through that spot on the map in in uh, Byron, North Dakota. So what uh, I originally did... Mike, you say you knew. This is, uh, let me just interject here. This is very similar to what happened to me with the line of Dundee, there is a psychic element in this, and you subconsciously already know the information. It's emerged in your conscious awareness. So you knew that if you extended that line, it would hit Byron, and it did. So you, this, this is a, a characteristic of this type of phenomena. Yes, and, 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 uh, and, I, and I've told this story a few times, so maybe I'm not, uh, you know, I, I cannot... Uh, say it strong enough that that this there was a sense of psychic knowing it almost yeah. was a you know there was a voice in my head that basically said these will connect and yeah. sure enough the way i originally did it is i just took a ruler and laid it on my computer screen and lined these things up they lined up perfectly there is a way using the google maps program to create little lines that can be very exacting and uh um, and I suspect there's a flaw in those lines. The earth is round and, and you know, the map is flat. Right. So um, right. so I just gave and myself over to Google Maps. As silly as it sounds, I just basically said, you know, this is the, this is the carefully shuffled deck of tarot cards and I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to, I'm just going to trust it. Um, yeah. I posted that. Someone online commented and they said, oh, you do know there's a Byron, Wyoming, don't you? And I had no idea. Mm-hmm. So I clicked on Byron, Wyoming. It seemed very significant. It's a very tiny town. Now, I will also say I recognized immediately that Byron, Wyoming, if you made a line from Byron, Wyoming to Byron, North Dakota, and you, in essence, laid the ruler on the map, I knew instantly, I mean, I, once again, I knew that that would cross over my, ho- over my home. And sure enough, when I lined it up on the map, and it was it, it was like exact. Uh, it actually it wasn't quite exact. Byron, uh, w- Wyoming, is a small little town, uh, and and there's a tiny little river. I believe it's the Shoshone River, and um, that the it's the, it's right off the main street, and the the river makes a short stretch, a very straight line, and that line drops not through the main street but through the river near the main street oh that's very interesting yes very interesting yeah. because that further shows when i you know i described to you later on about this that that is an actual physical line where that's involved with this byron line that uh, and and it's the rivers formed out of a shape in the land there and this is very common to ley lines where, you, you know, this is how I developed my theory of geomorphology, that 
that the line will follow the river course. So you're actually telling me here that you you noticed that the line was following the river course. Yes, I did notice uh, that, and that was the so I I, I uh, so that passes directly through my cabin. Yes. Um, you can get and this is and you know and remember one point of this map is based completely on a, a random place where Google Maps has chosen to put a, like a little pushpin into the into the image to demark um, to denote the the county of Byron, North Dakota. Right. So this is all. So there's one point. So, um, uh, in that psychic session, which was done months before. I think this all took place in March of of uh, 2010, and it would have been November of 2009 when I did the psychic session. Anya also said, um, and it was also it was kind of a babbling. It didn't really make sense. She was just kind of, you know, just blurted this out. She said, "If you go north from Byron to the border, 15 miles, and then go another 15 miles to the bank of the river, you'll you, you follow the river upstream on the left, and will be there." And the implication was like, wow, what does that mean? Now, uh, a reader of my blog, and I will also add this reader, has had some profound UFO experiences in his life, uh, uh, very telling UFO abduction-type experiences. Uh, he wrote me, and I've never actually talked to him on the phone, but we've corresponded over email a bit, and he said, listen, I, I uh, followed the line from Byron, Wyoming, north, or excuse me, I, f- I just went north 15 miles, and that's the Montana border. Mm-hmm. And then if you go 15 miles north from the Montana border, there's a, a, a mountain range called the Pryor Mountains. Mm-hmm. And the Pryor Mountains, which is, is also what he told me, uh, and this is all just using the Internet, just simple Google searches, the Pryor Mountains is the traditional home to the little people in the Crow Mountain, excuse me, the Crow Indian lore. Yes. And uh, I want to be very careful what I say next because it involves, uh, you know, private correspondence and the person asked me not to share too much. But I will say that I did get a letter out of the blue from a complete stranger as I was deciphering all this. And the uh, the uh, it was a story, a first person's tale of a fellow who saw a little person in not in the prior range, but in another range called the Wind River Range. And it would have been in the early 80s that he saw this. And he had a very interesting sighting of a tiny, 16-inch tall person. Right. Yes, they, they have been seen. Yes, I, which is, which is it, it shows up. It's, uh, it's not commonly, um, uh, you know, reported. It's, it's kind of dismissed. I, you know, I guess it's the same thing yep. as seeing a leprechaun in the, in the mountains of Ireland or the hills of Ireland. Right. So um, it's probably a very similar type of being. Yes, and I have, um, you know, I, I, this is going to be, the story doesn't really have a proper ending, but um, at some point mm-hmm. I'm going to, I plan on just visiting the prior mountains, um, and, and right. for, for reasons just out of sheer, you know, uh, life gets in the way and, you know, laziness right. and procrastination, I haven't done it yet, right. but I do plan I on visiting. I think an adventure awaits you there. Um, your Byron line, you know, it's very interesting because, uh, well, I sent you a, a map, you know, that shows how I'm relating this to land stresses. And uh, <laughs> I wanted to say a couple of things about your owls. Um, uh, family member, I mentioned this too, as a, uh, a bird watcher and um, something of an expert on, on birds. And it was pointed out to me that 
these earless owls in the Midwest are diurnal, and they, it's not unheard of them for them to be in a group or to be out in the daytime. And so this is something to think about. But um, I, you know, my response was, yes, but the photographer lives back there. Why did he consider that so unusual that he took pictures? And, and the photographer claimed that there, were, that there were 200 owls in the field. And, and I got a hold of the photographer, and, he, and I quoted him in one of the things. I just sent him a paper letter. I looked him up on, uh, you know, in the phone book, basically. And he, said, um, he basically said, you know, I've seen a lot of things in my life, but the, seeing all those owls was one of the most impressive things I've ever experienced. I'm paraphrasing uh, that, but that's, that's yeah, pretty much what I, he said. I'd imagine. Um, you know, so obviously it's not something they see back there all the time, you know, but apparently that particular species uh, does congregate in the daytime like that on the ground. And, uh, but you have to put this kind of thing in context. It's part of a larger cluster of information, and even though the, you could give a naturalistic explanation for the congregation of these owls, it's where they congregated and when they congregated and when they were noticed by this particular photographer and that he photographed them and how it relates to the rest of the information you're talking about. You have to look at owls as a symbol. And owls as a symbol, whether or not these particular kind of owls um, are are out in the daytime in a group. Uh, owls generally, as a symbol, are nocturnal. Most species of owls are nocturnal, particularly the barn owl we're so familiar with. And there's all kind of symbology, traditional esoteric symbology, involved with the owl, particularly with the ancient Egyptians. And the owl's a symbol of the astral plane in so many ways. Um, so... Uh, and, and, and ley lines deal with the astral energy. So we have to think about that. So even if somebody came along and debunked and said, oh, you know, that was owls do that. You know, the guy just happened to notice it. Yeah, but that's not the point. The point is that um, it is rather unusual. He noticed it, and he sent it to you, of all people, who then noticed that relationship to these other points. Including uh, Mac Tony's book arriving that very day. Right. All of those things are bits of information that need to be taken into account. They're a coalescing of events, it's synchronistic, and it's meaningful. And I think the owls are a symbol to you, and generally they're a symbol of the astral plane. This is what it's talking about. Now, this Byron equally, equally is a symbol of the astral plane. Because who, what do you think of? What's the first thing you think of when you hear the word Byron? Lord Byron, the poet from Lord the... Byron, the poet. And I've asked a few people this, and I get invariably the same answer. What do you think of when you hear Byron? Lord Byron, the poet. Of course, that's what I thought of. And um, Lord Byron, it was a very interesting character. Um, and I've discussed some of the aspects with, I won't get into that, uh, now, but uh, we discussed this a little bit, and I discussed some of the aspects of Lord Byron's character and what I thought all this meant uh, symbolically. But here, what I want to uh, emphasize, point out, is that Byron, Lord Byron, he was really into esoteric things. And one of the things he did, he liked to give people the impression that he could bilocate 
and he actually hired actors to be dressed like him and appear in public places where he was known to be at another place at the same time, and he would claim that he had bilocated and that he was using astral energy to project to these places. So, um, so Byron is suggestive of Lord Byron, who was known to have doppelgangers. And what do you notice here in the Byron line is formed by two Byrons, just like Lord Byron. That's telling, that's information, and it's saying uh, astral plane. It's saying astral energy. And uh, so that's just my little tidbit I'll offer there. Uh, along with uh, one other tidbit, my knowledge of geomorphology, um, all of these points, your cabin in Driggs, the Byron up there by the Canadian border, uh, and the site of those owls, those are key points in the landscape in terms of continental drift. And they're points of compression. It creates a triangle of, of compression between those points, and those lines um, define pr a primary compression uh, between Driggs and uh, the area of Kansas City and the Canadian border. And you can actually see that. Uh, I sent you a little map there. You can see how uh, from Mount Cleveland uh, all the way across Canada there along the uh, highway, uh, Regina uh, is, is on that highway. Uh, there's a stress line that runs all along that, that highway, and, and it curves back down to the site of Byron, North Dakota. Um, and there are these other stress lines that the, your cabin and the, the owls are on, and it's like the land squeezing together. The, the, the owls are being pushed to the west. Your cabin site is being pushed a little to the east, and uh, so their uh, Driggs and the Owl site are compressing together, and Byron, North Dakota, is pre is pressing southward. You have a triangle of stress being defined there, and this is the way these ley lines are formed. They're based on the way the mechanical stresses of the Earth are formed, and so in my opinion, um, this is a real ley line in that sense. Uh, there, there are two or three different kinds of, of alignments or ley lines that can be described in terms of geomorphology, but this is a kind I would call it's an analytical line. It's a line of analysis that identifies key points of stress, and that's what your Byron line is and your, and your owl Byron line um, uh, up in North Dakota. Um, it's, uh, it, it's a real ley line. Uh, I'm not quite sure exactly what it all means I, and i don't know either but, and, and here yeah, let me add one little point to this real. um uh so so it's to make a true triangle you would have three lines uh so right. the line that connects uh the uh my cabin with the original spot of the owls in yes. uh in missouri runs okay. right through a very tiny park in central wyoming in a small town yeah. And I, um, this is, I'm not going to get too much into it because it's very personal, but I was at a funeral and uh, it was, uh, a friend had died and, and uh, the funeral was very touching and uh, I took it very personally and the, the events of that funeral and, and the passing of this, this young woman um, was a very, very pivotal chapter in my life. And that's where the, 
almost the ceremony took place uh, with a very few key set of people was in that park. I see. Well, that's highly significant. And you can imagine uh, the whole thing with the, the astral energy we're talking about and Mac Tony's, all oh, that that's figuring right, yeah. in. You see, that's all figuring in. And it's talking to you, Mike. Um, this is a message directed directly at you, and it's talking about this experience with this woman that passed away and Mac Tony's. And I would say for you to think about those two people and what they meant to you and, and also when they passed away and, you know, just think about all that and maybe some things will come to you. But this is the, the universe talking to you, and this is the way these ley lines work. This is one of the things they do. Uh, you know, there's a, a, a big rock up here in California. It's, it's near... Um, it's near, uh, you've heard of the Donner Party. I'm sure, sure, yeah, yeah. You know, it's very close to where the Donner Party incident happened at Donner Lake. Um, and it's this big rock. It's called Rocking Rock. And, I, in fact, I mentioned it in my book. And uh, the Indians used that as an oracle. Uh, the, 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 the big megalith was about two stories tall. And then on top of that was another rock. And that would blow back and forth when the wind blew. It was so perfectly balanced. And, you know, so they use this as an oracle. This is what a lot of people have done with ley lines throughout the thousands of years. Uh, they're charged with energy and information, and sometimes they just talk directly to you. Sometimes you can go into a ley line, uh, to a ley spot, and you can get psychic information and just flood into your mind. So you're experiencing something like that with this. This is... Uh, uh, you know, I believe it's very real what's going on with you, and unless someone heard you out, heard your whole story, it's very easy to dismiss and say, "Oh, he's just, you know, making these things up," or you know, it's his imagination. You know, but I've heard your story out, and I've looked at the the information, and it all hangs together. And this is something that's very real that's happened to you. So I, I would just say, you know, keep thinking about it, and I think you know you'll. It'll, you'll begin to understand it better. What the, there's a message there for you. I agree. I agree. Important and, and, to you, you know. And so. um, hey, this has gone great. It's uh, it's been going at it for about two hours and twenty minutes. And, and wow. uh, yeah, amazing, huh? Yeah. Yeah. It's been great. I yeah. really enjoyed it. Good, good, and so have I. Um, anything else you want to add here? Well, I can't think of anything. I think we really had a great conversation here, and I would just say I'd encourage your listeners to get an imprint of Atlas and give it a read because I think you'll find it interesting. Uh, it's a very low price. They do have to have a Kindle reader to get it, but um, there's some very interesting books out, e-books now, uh, that you can only get through uh, putting on a Kindle reader. So uh, I, I would just say get a Kindle reader and you know start getting some of these books, uh, including Walter's uh, Disneyland book and... Uh, and The Empire of the Wheel, which is just coming out now, a fabulous book, just extremely interesting. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I guarantee they will enjoy these books and they'll get something out of them. Uh, so, and I thank you for having me on your program. It's been a great experience. Good, good. It's been delightful. I will um, also add that yesterday we talked very briefly on the phone, and uh, one of the things I did after we hung up... Uh, you know, we were making the appointment for this for this talk here. Was uh, looked up um, online, and I watched the YouTube video of 
the Coral Castle episode on uh, which would have been done in the 1970s on a television show called In Search Of that was narrated yeah. by um, Leonard Nimoy. And yeah. it was great. It was great. It was funny because it sounds like you saw that back in the day when it first came out. And you remembered a few did. key points and uh, and you described them to me. And then when I watched the video, um, you described them quite accurately. So Oh, great. It's been decades since I saw that. And I was always hoping that they would rerun that episode and back uh, a few years ago, they it did come on again, and this was now the age of the videotape recording. And I was going to record the Coral Castle episode, but I, it never came on. So I think some of the information in that you can't get anywhere else, but um, there are some little brochures on Coral Castle that you can purchase on site, and it might have some of that in it, but uh, uh, particularly about the children watching Ed Lee Skelnan levitate these stone blocks. I, I, I haven't been able to find that information anywhere else. But, yes, uh, and that was that was depicted, uh, you know, the, the the wonderful voice of Leonard Nimoy narrated that section while it was being reenacted, you know, using actors and what I assume was just a big piece of styrofoam. So. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I, I'm, I believe that, that they were telling the truth, what they saw, you know, from what I know about it. Uh, so, yeah, that's uh, uh, that was a good program, too. I enjoyed that. Good, good. And just as I end it here, I'm going to read one little thing. I'm going to read it the second time because it resonates okay. so deeply with me. And I feel like both you and I, uh, you know, this, this, I could have written this line, and, yes. but you did, and I'm just going to read it again. What I was doing was about to send me on a fantastic quest, a quest that continues to this day. The line I was studying was a path, and it was meant for me alone. And I would add, Mike, that that line is a path that anybody can take with just a little bit of curiosity, just a little bit of, uh, of an open openness to experience, and it's uh, it's a fantastic path, and it could be theirs too. I agree. I agree. Yeah, and that's the the one thing I do say, and the the easiest way to sum up some of my, uh, you know, the path that I'm on is that I've just chosen to pay attention. Yes. Yeah. Well, thanks so much. Thank you, Mike. It's been great, and uh, hope we can talk again. Uh, And I'm looking forward to it. Okay. Bye now. Okay, bye-bye. Ooh, wow, that was great. This is Mike chiming in at the end here. Hey, uh, I just I just uh, thoroughly enjoyed that whole conversation. It was insightful. It was warm-hearted. It was uh, you know it felt like we went to some deep places. And um, once again, I don't know what's up with that guy, but boy, he sure resonates deep with me in a way that I'm very impressed. I encourage you to uh, pursue his books. Read them. Uh, if you have a Kindle, you can download the stuff off the internet for uh, just a few dollars. Everything is for sale very inexpensively. And I also have to say um, just how grateful I, I am that uh, I could talk about the issues surrounding the, the map and Byron, North Dakota and the owls and Mac Tonys uh, with someone who was so insightful and so uh, eager and open-hearted and, and uh and ready to share what what he has to offer. It's really, really felt great at my end. If you've made it this far, thank you so much, and bye now.